0: Yeah, snapping is what you do when you're at a slam or spoken word poetry show, and I like it because it's immediate feedback. Anyways, you are listening to the Awoken Word podcast, and I am your host, Anuj Rastogi, and today's episode and today's conversation is just awesome. I mean, I I guess, can I say that? It's my podcast, but it's awesome not because of me, it's awesome because... Our guest today is an incredible man, Ian French. Many of you may know him as If the Poet, and Ian is just an incredibly unique Renaissance man, I think it's fair to say. And I was fortunate enough to get some time with him super late one night. Ian, I really apologize for holding you back as late as I did. This conversation touches on many things. It is big it is expansive. It is also small and intimate, and I really, really enjoyed talking to Ian. I've, uh, I've spent some time with him in the past, and we always have a great time together, and I always learn so much, and I'm really lucky that I get a chance to share that with you guys today. This conversation also has all sorts of shout-outs to some, uh, some really important people between both Ian and I. So shout-outs to Dwayne Morgan, to uh, the hip-hop artist Akala, Ian Kedeku, Dave Silverberg, Roger Christian, Nikki Aris, Shane Coisen, Rudy Francisco, Javon Johnson. So you'll hear a lot about people from all walks of life and definitely a few poets in there. We talk a lot about poetry. We talk a lot about art. We talk a lot about what it means to be a man today. And he is definitely very much a Renaissance man. He also just dives right into dropping some gems from his previous work in terms of spoken word poetry And uh, you'll get a little bit of a flavor for what he's all about. We also talk about the importance of knowing your own story, but also not being victim to your own story and knowing that your story is not finished yet. You're still writing the damn thing. So take it in your hands. We talk a lot about nuance. We talk about the world. We talk about love. We talk about conversation itself. We talk about Jordan Peterson and the polarization that has driven a wedge between us as human beings and the importance of conversation like this to bring us back together. So here you go, Ian French. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. We are joined here today by Ian French. Ian, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So, Ian, I have been trying to figure out what the right theme or title for this conversation with you is, and when I think of you having met you, I think about two years ago, I really started to think about, interestingly, this idea of reincarnation, and in many ways, I think you are a man reincarnated maybe several times in, (laughs) in, in a single life, so... Uh, I I know you as someone who's evolved, taken on many different shapes and forms in your life, and I came across you first as a slam poet, and to be honest, you caught me quite off guard when I first met you. So for those who don't know you, Ian, uh, who is Ian French, the man behind If The Poet?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. First off, let me just say that, you know, I approached—what's uh, uh, the, uh, the people that do your family trees? Ancestry.com. Okay. And I yeah. got this business idea that we should trace, you know, our reincarnational family tree. But, so I think that's— if you uh, left I, a DNA residue, yeah. that would be cool. <laughs> I think that's the next, the next big thing. Um, well, let me put it this way. There's a poem I wrote a long time ago that probably sums up who I am, and it goes something like this. Um, they voted me most likely to fail thought I'd be throttled by the bottle or found dead in jail. But I said to hell with caskets and bars and set sail for the stars. So no, these scars don't define me. They only remind me what I put behind me. So take it as a sign, please, that sometimes even the blind see. I've lived through disasters. Now I walk through green pastures and I fear no evil for it never existed. Just love been twisted, double-fisted by hate and bent out of shape, but it's never too late to fix our mistakes, to right our done wrongs from the cultures we stomped on till they was all butt-gone, to the bombs we dropped on homes from Baghdad to Saigon, and the fortune we spend on warfare and weapons, feeding the demon, pretending we're somehow defending our freedom, but I still believe in Dr. King's dream, and Gandhi's vision of a world with no prisons, where multiple religions don't add up the divisions. Our sons and our daughters are not cannon fodder, and peace falls upon us like holy water. And I think that generally sums up where I came from and what my philosophy was. There is.
0: Come out swinging, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that right there is uh, how I came across you the first time and didn't really know what to say.
1: Yeah, I don't really do that sort of style anymore. That really kind of rhymy style. I, I, I you know, sort of moved away from that in poetry, but uh, I do like to you know throw it back in once in a while. But it's funny you mention reincarnation. I do believe in reincarnation, absolutely. Uh, I, I would think the difference, the way I look at it, the way that most other people look at it, is I believe that uh, I, don't, I don't I don't think time is linear, right? And yeah. I think that reincarnations are all happening now simultaneously, but we're just experiencing them. in in this physical form in a linear fashion, Um, you know, that we live in a world of probabilities that we sort of experience. So, And and I I do believe there will come a time when actually people as a species, that that reincarnational information will be available to us intellectually rather than just in dreams Mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. And, you know, that's going to be a shock for people to find out they are uh, the people they hated.
0: And when you say you you believe in reincarnation, do you believe it in the in the literal, material sense, like we come back in new bodies again and again, or do you believe it at a more metaphorical level?
1: No, I believe it on a uh, not on a metaphorical level. I believe that you know your soul or entity seeds many different physical personalities into the physical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for example, there's probably counterparts of you walking around as a, as a woman in China or,
0: you know, whatever, somewhere else. And I definitely have my, uh, my visa card somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and I think there's, and, and I think that accounts for, you know, I always find it interesting when you find these people who have, like, this incredible in-depth passion about, you know, French history, 16th century history, and, or, you know, they're right into, Trains or something like whatever it is. These weird, bi- and I, I sometimes think there's reincar- reincarnational connections there. But I know for a fact. For example, I was a monk in a former life. Like I, 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 I that just I, I know I, I even have those tendencies still. Mm-hmm. And I think those personalities, because they are simultaneous, live on within us, and and we share who we are with them, and they share who they are with us.
0: At a cosmic level, mm-hmm. I mean, just going by you know classical physics, and you know that energy is never created nor destroyed. It just is inevitably energy is taking new forms all the time. Right. So even at a, at a universal level, it is manifesting itself over and over. Right. Like, you know, we die, we decay. And then next thing you know, there is a plant somewhere or there is a new person. Yeah. So, um, no, that's, I mean, that's interesting that we kind of just jumped right into it.
1: (laughs) So I don't think I've ever talked about that. I
0: think, I think we're going to end up coming back to that. So, Before we kind of go further, I mean, I know you as first, at least my first introduction to you was as a spoken word poet. I know that you've, uh, you came in third in the World Slam Poetry Championships in 2014. You won the Buffalo International Slam. You have a Wikipedia page, which means you're totally legit and and, and real. And I I do remember it was actually a a showcase that Dwayne Morgan had put on. Right. And Dwayne's actually someone uh, I'm uh, hoping to get here sometime soon. Uh, Love the guy, love all the stuff that he does. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing you go up on stage, and I mean this with all due respect, but I saw an older white guy go up on stage and, you know, publicly admitting, like, we all have our sort of uh, misconceptions, and it just, it didn't fit within the mold that I had wrongly created for what this form would be. And then I think the first poem, if I'm not mistaken, that you dropped, was about From what I understood, that what the pastors on either side of a battlefield might be telling their soldiers, right? And I was in complete awe. Um, I think you had another poem that was uh, sort of an an homage to to Africa Mm. and the oneness of humanity. And I remember hearing just the way that you presented the story, the narrative, and I was just like hanging off every word. Oh, thanks, man. And I thought, where the hell did this guy come from? And just how did this sort of take place so i'm i'm just I'm curious on this entire journey that's kind of led up to not just the poetry but like who are you
1: yeah well that it's that's you know it's <laughs> it's probably too uh I don't even know how to go about answering it but i, I would just say from from the poetry perspective I, I wish I could tell you that there was kind of a linear path that that happened in that, but it really it really didn't, and I've always believed that in life what makes you quote unquote successful in your own life is is the universe opens doors and the successful people are the people who walk through those doors when they when they're open. Right. And and that's really what happened to me. I, I was basically trying to stay involved in my kids' life. So I started listening to a lot of hip hop. And unlike a lot of people of my generation, uh, who, you know, listen, you know, hear the bitches and hoes thing and say that medium sucks. Yeah. Um you know, I went sort of really deep on it and I was listening to it. And as someone who's always loved words and lyricism, I was like, oh, fuck, these people have rewritten the lyrical game. absolutely, And flipped it over. And like, I'm not a big rap devotee or anything, but I was astounded by the skill and what they were doing. And, you know, everyone my age was completely ignoring it like it never existed, which is, of course, what their parents did when rock and roll came right. along yeah. and the whole thing, right? It's so ridiculous. they yeah. Repeat it, but... So anyway, I started, you know, just because I was turned on by, it, I started writing like that, but, you know, I, I can't rap and, and whatnot, and I, I can't remember how it happened, but I ended up going into a a thing that the late, great Charles Roach, um, who well, if you don't know who he is, look him up, he's uh, a, a legend, uh, one of the most important citizens Toronto's ever had, the guy who's really responsible for the fact that we have a, a board that oversees police behavior. Even though they may not do the greatest job, Mm -hmm. they exist because of him. Anyway, he used to run a thing called Sunday Poetry at Ellington's, and I went in there one day. And the way I remember it was, he said, "You know, are you here to perform?" And I was like, "Uh, "Yeah." And he was, "Yeah, (laughs) the stage is yours." And anyway, I ended up going up and, you know, it was terrible and whatnot. But he was very supportive and encouraging and said, hey, why don't you come back next week? We'd love to have you again. And and that's where I kind of shifted it from writing these rap lyrics to sort of doing somewhat poetry. Right. And then somebody told me about spoken word, which I didn't know existed. I knew nothing about it. Um, And the first show I ever went to, I competed at, uh, which was at the Drake. And I was immediately hooked. Like I went in. And there was all these, uh, you know, it was primarily younger people, but multicultural yeah. and and energy and excitement and, and loving words and loving lyrics. And I was just like, this is amazing. Right. And uh, I fell in love with it. And I've always been the type of person that, I don't care what I'm supposed to be doing for my age or all this. Like, you know, I, I played guitar as a teenager, and I didn't put it down when I got to 20 and right. got a mortgage. Like, yeah. I, I kept, you know, I'm like, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And for me, it was like I felt the door open, and I felt the invitation to come in, and I'm talking, you know, spiritually or whatever. And I was just, I'm, I'm following it, and and that's what I did. I followed that muse, and and I was really, really fortunate to, you know, to f- get tapped into the Toronto uh, spoken word community and that Dave Silverberg is running yeah. at the end and Dwayne Morgan and, you know, ending up with Ian Keteku as my coach. And all of these very fortuitous things happen because I followed that passion.
0: I have to assume that you've read The Prophet. I have Lula read The Prophet.
1: Him. I love yeah. The Prophet. I think it's one of the greatest books I've ever The written.
0: universe will conspire in your yeah. favor.
1: That book is genius. It
0: is, so yeah. simple, it's to, so
1: simple. It's so,
0: yeah. This conversation keeps resurfacing around uh, free will versus determinism or versus <laughs> destiny. I haven't completely formulated uh, where I stand on it. I do have a pretty clear hypothesis, I think, but inevitably, I, I share this same sentiment that sometimes there's a door open in some metaphorical and sometimes quite literal way, yep. and you have a decision or at least I believe you have a decision to walk through or not. And when you walk through and then another door opens and another door opens, and it feels like you're almost just riding a wave that you haven't planned, but you just know somehow, some way you should be there. Yes, exactly. It's quite a feeling. I mean, I've been a, a musician for most of my life. Spoken word actually came into my life probably back in 2001, 2002, when I first got introduced to it in a slam in Edmonton. And I wrote a couple of pieces that sucked. Mm, like, yeah. I I didn't realize how much they sucked until yeah. I actually went up and delivered them. Right. And, I, and then I didn't think I could actually get through the entire set. But I'm like, well, I'm here. I may as well finish this off. And, you know, the crowd is somewhat charitable. Yeah. But it was terrible. Yeah. And then I wrote one poem that till this day, um, Breaking News, I still perform a lot. That was the first time I realized, no, I can actually do this. Yeah. But then that was the last thing that I wrote for several years. And then somehow in the last few years, it kind of it found me again. Right. Or I found it. I don't know. I've got about 130 pages worth of, <laughs> of spoken word and written poetry <laughs> compiled now. Yeah. And when it actually happens, I feel like it's a flow state. Like, I can't sit down and say, I'm going to write about these things. Yeah, yeah. If something hits, then the next line comes and the next one comes. I almost feel like a fraud even claiming authorship for it because sometimes it just feels like... Well, it's just happening. Yeah, you
1: know what? But everything, it, everything that comes through you comes through you. Sure. So even if the source is, however, whatever you want to talk about, whether it's your soul or God or whatever, how you want to frame mm-hmm. that, it's still translated through you, right? You know, like the prophet feels to me like, you know, channeled material. Like it's, you know, it's yeah. so pure and and but it's got his unmistakable, unmistakable. Mm-hmm imprint on it, right? And and I think that is art. Art is translating that whatever thing, that inspiration or imagination through, you know, the vessel of your creativity and your being and your experience. Right.
0: I'm curious that as a writer, as a poet, what is it that motivates and inspires you how do these ideas come into being
1: you know I think I I don't I'm not 100% sure and I think it changes over time um like when I first started writing I was writing intensely political stuff that I didn't even realize was in me you know Mm -hmm. because I I, because because I like to avoid pain I tend to avoid a lot of politics and I just you know Gazed my attention somewhere else, so I didn't even realize. I think the amount of anger that was in me. So when I first started writing, all this, you know,
2: yeah, came I, out, I can right? relate.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you see it all the time yeah. on poetry stages, right? People yeah. come out and it's like gunfire right away, right? And and then when I got that out of me, um, you know, then I sort of moved to a different onto on sort of more. Philosophical things that I was really interested in and and i and 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 I began to view the art form as a way to that I could communicate certain messages that I had, and I could do them in a way where I met the audience halfway and I could bring them on a journey with me by meeting them at a certain point, so I had enough common references to the way people think and feel mm-hmm. that I could meet them there, and then I could get them to come with me to a place that they hadn't been before. And like you referenced that poem about, it's called, When the Military Chaplains Lead the Soldiers in Service. And the origin of that poem really was because my grandfather, who I never met, but I've heard nothing but, you know, great stories about him, was a very outstanding man and, you know, uh, just a great human being in general. He, he, He was a minister. Okay. And he was a soldier. And... The idea of the way that God has been used as an excuse to rage war, mm-hmm. and the fact that they have ministers and chaplains and rabbis and, you know, all of these things yeah. on the battlefield—personally, I, I find that idea completely incongruent. Mm-hmm. Like, to my mind, what could be less divine than killing other yeah. people? Yeah, So immediately that idea is of huge interest to me, because, like, what, what's going on here? And so I wanted to sort of explore it from the lens of the idea of—especially the way I was looking at it—was Christian soldiers in a Muslim land and what they're thinking and what they're being told versus what's—you know, versus the history and the canvas that's actually playing Mm -hmm. out around them. Right. So that's what— you know, I think the poem starts with, I can't remember, but it, but it's like, um, you know, if Muhammad were alive today, he'd be in Guantanamo Bay. gag rag down his throat, copper wire on his testicles, God himself turning away in disgust as generals discuss Super Bowl picks and advance interrogation techniques with politicians absent without leave from basic human decency. Like, to my mind, that addresses the issue of religion, but it also mm-hmm. talks about you know, our willingness to torture people, our willingness to sacrifice our morals for some ideological principle. Right. Um, And so to my mind, that was very ripe territory. And and when I say about meeting people halfway, I think that's an uncomfortable place for most people to go into because we're so nationalistic and we've been trained, you know, that the military is above scrutiny Mm -hmm. and, you know, loyalty to one's country is one of the greatest ideals we hold up, and I don't believe that. I, right. I believe that—I believe loyalty to the principles of life and the loyalty to what you hold as being the moral, morally important things are more important than the tribalism. You know, countries are run by politicians. Right. And, you know, when you go to war for a country, you're usually going war for a politician or not— You. Uh, yeah. It can happen, let's put yeah. it that way. And if there, were you know, so I wanted to look at that through that a different lens.
0: It's interesting. Uh, I've had uh, Roger Christian, who is the gentleman that worked with George Lucas on A New Hope. So he was one of the first three hired by George Lucas to work on Star Wars. And he's actually the guy that designed much of the look of the entire Star Wars wow. universe. He In this built, chair? In this very chair. Uh, <laughs> Can just I take last it with week, me? Just last week. <laughs> he designed the lightsaber. Right. Oh wow! Uh, he designed the blaster Crazy. gun for Han Solo, the entire cockpit and look and feel of the Millennium Falcon. That that dirty aesthetic of yeah, space yeah. and Star Wars. That was which they've never beat in my w- opinion. It, of course. And and so he is he is a legend. And I was beside myself. I've known him for quite some time. What was really really interesting in talking to him, amongst many other things, was coming back to this idea of story and mythology. Right. And he talked about in the context of George Lucas and through Star Wars creating the first real perfect modern myth. Like since ancient times of religion, it's one of the few examples of a true myth, but the power of storytelling and the story that needs to be bigger than ourselves. And at the same time, I just started reading um, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, And in having heard him speak, he talks a lot about this idea of the story and that we need something bigger than us to be able to collaborate. And the one thing that we've done as a species, different from every other species here, we can collaborate in large numbers, in huge numbers. Unlike many of the other creatures on this planet, we're not nearly as strong we are somewhat more intelligent. We don't have a lot of those physical gifts that a tiger or a bear or an elephant might have, but we can collaborate in very large numbers. And we do that on a story that God wants us to do this, that your country needs you to do this, that this group of people is the enemy or there's that threat or whatever. So we need to tell each other a story and make it bigger than we believe ourselves to be in order to buy into it, to then stand on the front lines and kill or maim some complete stranger right. that you've never met that may have never done anything to your family yep. you've got no beef with yeah you need a story that's more powerful and i find it such a travesty that till this day we still use those stories primarily to do harm to each other instead yep. of good because a, a story can be very powerful as a yep. positive force too
1: yeah i and, and i'm really glad you, you, i'm really glad you said that um Anuj, because you know, there's a lot of emphasis now. You hear talk about the power of storytelling. It's really coming back. Right. And, you know, the spoken word community is about that. Tell your story. And, and, and I even have a poem that's about telling your story. But there are problems with it, as you just pointed out. And you point them on a societal level, which I think is absolutely true, is we have stories about Canada, you know, mm-hmm. stories about our history. Yeah. And they usually don't include, you know, the decimation of Native cultures, for example. Yeah. and they, you know, they're whitewashed and they're designed with a propagandic end in mind, right, to to get people behind a myth and moving forward. And that's not to say that there isn't truth in the story. And yeah. I think the founding of any country, you know, it, the the people who came over here, my ancestors, you know, risked incredible things and, you know, their fortitude and their ingenuity and their perseverance is, is, is unbelievable. Right. But, you know, they also were participated in. You know, the decimation of cultures, which at the time was the consciousness of the species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to single them. I, if I was back there and I was one of them, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, we're a product of our environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm not condemning it, but that's a story. You know? yeah. and we have to be aware of what the whole story is and what other people's stories are. And the same thing with our personal narrative. You know, this is why you know people get caught up in the story, especially if it's a victimhood story from where they came from. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think your story can. Uh, I think it's important to know your story and then bury your story. Yeah, you know, like don't let the story, don't let the backstory become the future story.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: So I, I I'm, I'm a little ambivalent about the story. It's vitally important, but. Don't get married to your story. Write a different
0: story. Well, that that's it, actually. That story didn't end there. Yeah. Right? That story is actually still being written. And if you didn't like chapter one, yeah. we have the opportunity to write it here in real yeah, time. Yeah, don't
1: drag your history into the future.
0: Yeah, and it's, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and I'm sure we're going to spend some time talking about—I'll just be fully honest with you—I hate using the terms left and right. Right. Anything that gets that simplistically binary to yeah. me is just completely untrue. There's a bazillion shades of yeah. grey and nuance in between. But in the eyes of the some element of the left, you, uh, a 50-something white guy, and me now, a 40-year-old, second-generation Indian guy, albeit I was born in Canada, we occupy sort of a different space in society in being able to say certain things, right? right? So your ancestors came here and did a lot of interesting and amazing things, but also decimated an entire population of people that had been here for thousands of years. My ancestors didn't do that, but my parents came over here, and now we are the benefactors yep. of much of the infrastructure and seeds that were sown on the backs and at the expense of you know yep. our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. So it would be ridiculous and simplistic and quite honestly just dumb for me to say that this is just a quote-unquote white man's burden, right? right? We are all complicit to some degree in in all of the insanity that happens on the planet.
1: Yeah. And and I also, you know, would say something even more unpopular is that I I believe that the Aboriginals had a way of living in the world that is, that we are in dire need of learning, Mm -hmm. you know, a sense of balance and a sense of respect for the environment and all kinds of spiritual principles that infused their daily life that weren't based on the kind of fear divorced from nature western adam and eve conquer the world story right but i also don't believe that they lived in complete peace you know they mm-hmm. had slaves they warred yeah. on each other you know they their you know their treatment of certain groups within their groups was not of the highest standard. So, you know, all of these things are nuanced. Yeah, absolutely. Right, you know, and, yeah. and I think that's, you know, so, and, and I also believe that we evolve physically as a species, and we, everyone talks about sort of physical evolution, also, but there's a spiritual or ethical or more moral evolution that goes on as well mm-hmm. that's very rarely talked about and you know i'll give an example in 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 the second world war like we look back at the second world war now and the story we tell ourselves again coming back to the story yeah. is that you know we the 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 jews were being persecuted and you know we stepped in to stop that it's total bullshit. Yeah. you know That's not what happened at all. Europe was threatened by what Germany was doing, and they were worried about their own countries and their own allegiance. And that fact is evidence. There was a guy at York University, a professor, I forget his name now, but he wrote a book called None is Too Many. And it was basically about several boatloads of Jewish refugees who came up to St. Lawrence into Canada. And when they were asked, you know, how many are we going to let into Canada? The answer was none is too many. So it wasn't anything about sure. saving Jewish people at that time. That was the consciousness of the species at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's only because Germany took it to such an extreme and threatened everyone else that there was this response going on. But right. the idea of killing other people who aren't of your group or, and persecuting them was accepted everywhere.
0: It's still accepted. It's still
1: accepted, but it's questioned now. You know, we've evolved since then. We've seen the horrors that spill out of that. Yeah. I'm not saying we're beyond it, mm-hmm. but we're in a we're we we are more evolved, morally and ethically, than we were back then. And I think we make a big mistake by looking back at history and imagining that they had the same way of moralizing and 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 ethical thinking that we have today. They don't. They didn't.
0: Right. I agree with you. The moral framework at a certain point in time. Will vary. I mean, several decades ago, women didn't have the right to vote. Yeah. It 200 work. years
1: ago, we were voting on whether women had souls.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And there's still parts of the world where they're still wrestling with, I mean, the fact that Saudi Arabia has just finally allowed women to drive, and that there's even one person out there commending them for that decision— like, dude, this is 2018. Like, the fact that you've just allowed women to drive now, and you should be commended for that, to me, is just ridiculous.
1: Right. Let me add, let me add a counterpoint to that, though. If it were, like I've done a lot of work um, on my on my business side, one of the things we I did a lot of work raising money for non government organizations mm-hmm. for to end child poverty or all kinds of things like that. So I've gone to you know a bunch of developing countries and sure. this sort of thing. And one of the things that bothers me is, we look at them and it's like, oh my god, like they're so backwards. They're doing this. They're doing that. We were there not that long ago. Yeah, agreed. Like it's not, you know, it's it's really real. Like, divorce was legalized in Canada in 1960. Mm-hmm. You know, women. When if you got divorced, if if you split up, you had nothing. You had no rights to anything. You know uh there i have i there's a friend of mine who i had dinner with tonight she has a piece of paper where where her i think it's her great great grandmother from the east coast was basically sold as a servant to a home and that was not considered unusual mm-hmm. you know that it, it may have been a little on the rare side but it wasn't sure. seen as anything that was it was you know they had too many kids they couldn't afford them They gave it to this family. They paid, and she worked for them for no pay, basically, and was the household servant. Right. That's not that long ago. Yeah. So when we go to these places and we see these things, we go, oh, they don't educate the girls. My wife's family moved from the countryside in Quebec into the city so the boys could go to school. I wasn't thinking about the girls. That's one generation ago. So I think we have to be really careful when we're looking at other countries and condemning them, you know, time is a big thing, it, and it we, is we look thing, at yeah. our little window and go.
0: I agree, and know. yeah, a lot of this uh, supposed enlightenment is very recent, even here in the in For the West, sure. in in the industrialized world, and many of the cultures are either younger in some regards or older, and they've evolved in different ways and yeah. different times. I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. I just think that. For the most part, as far as I understand it, we've basically stopped evolving physiologically. For the most part, there are pockets of it, but we have intersected uh, biological evolution with cultural and social, and you know, maybe a few of us even spiritual evolution in such a big way that all of the natural forces that would have been changing our physiology are they're not as uh, they're not as much at play, and yet the amount and rate of exchange that we have is part of what's disrupting the world too. I know a right. lot of cultures that are, first of all, there's not a single part of the planet. That's not patriarchal, right? There is a degree of patriarchy at play in every single part of the world, maybe less so in some and more so in others. And it's taken some time to, to undo, but ideas are traveling so quickly yeah. and people are able to adapt to those so quickly. People I think are able to adapt to them as individuals, maybe yeah. even as collectives. What hasn't been able to evolve is the power structures. I don't think that a government that has always treated certain people a certain way has been able to let go of the reins of power in certain ways that, you know, even governments in the West don't let go of those powers uh, in the same way. Um, And now the new power structure is largely corporate. It's not even countries anymore. And that is playing out even more so. So I think that we're able to adapt actually quite remarkably. I find it, every time i've gone back to india knowing the state that it was left in post independence in 47 right. and how far it's come and it has god knows a wh- a long way to go still yep. Don't we all. it's come a long way in in a very short time but the resilience of the people and their ability to adapt to technology and new ways of yep. doing things is just astounding like yep. they are light years ahead of you know most of the west in many regards yep. in in areas of technology and yet there's a government structure and this idea of communalism and, and power politics and nationalism and all this stuff that's playing out in many other parts of the world that's the thing that's not evolving right because there's too much money being made in that system right. for a certain small handful of people yeah we are at a point where i think we just need to evolve i was i was talking to you about this earlier and one of the things i actually really wanted to touch on i know that you are speaking at the masculinity yeah, summit yeah men in
1: and women's summit on masculinity yeah okay
0: it's interesting, for the first time in history, I believe, in some really meaningful way, men are under the microscope, right. and I think it's for good reason. And as evolved as we might be in in some parts of the world, and as much as there are many, many millions of great guys who are just trying their level best every day to be, uh, you know, honest, decent, kind, generous human beings who are supporting all the women in their life and are, you know, shutting down. Stupid jokes or the patriarchy that 's kind of manifesting itself, there are still millions of men at the same time that are just completely out of touch with that human side of them and what it means what what I believe it should mean to be a man so i 'm curious where do you stand on all this i mean you 're obviously presenting at the summit. this yeah. is something we 've talked about w- What does being a man today mean to you
1: yeah well that's that's <laughs> that 's a great question and let me just preface it by saying. I, I don't have any, um, you know, scholastic or research background on this. So, you know, there's people who studied masculinity. I'm not one of them, you know. So I, I come at it from as a poet, as a father, as a son, as a husband, you know, mm-hmm. those sort of things. And and I think where I net out on it is, I like, I don't think—I think—, I, I think uh, one of the guys who's speaking i think his name is Warren Farrell at this at this summit uh, i was watching one of his videos and he was talking about how societies you know wanted men to be you know are the modern definition of toxic masculinity because they needed people who were willing to go to war and and die and kill and uh you know you don't get in <laughs> enlightened men who are generally lining up for that kind of thing right. so you know we had societies who who valued that. And it, it wasn't just men, you know, it was women wanted those type mm-hmm. of men and, and women raised those type of men. Uh, so it's not just a, a, a man thing. I think it's a cultural and societal thing of what we expect out of men. And I think it also gets on a, on a spiritual level in the sense of our religious framework in the West is one of separation from and domination of nature. Right. And, you know, that is how our concept of God evolved. And naturally, because God was seen as male, men are trying to emulate that. And that has been a, you know, the idea of the powerful, unfeeling, protector, attacker, warrior, all of those type of things, I think are connected to our religious views as well. So I, again, I think this has many, many, many threads in it. But at the end of the day, I do not know what it means to be a good man and I don't know what it means to be a good woman and I don't know what it means to be a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. What I come back to is I know what it means to be a good person. And I think if you are a good person and by that I mean you're acting out of a idea of something that is good for you and those around you and the world at large, then you will act in a way that is uh, you know, for lack of a better term, an enlightened masculinity or femininity. But, you know, I, I saw this thing the other day that somebody from the summit actually posted. It was a woman talking about, you know, we need this, we don't, we need more masculinity, but we need, because we need people who are, uh, you know, heroes and right. who are defenders and all these other things. But if you look at the greatest men in history, you know, I dare to say most people would say, you know Gandhi, most enlightened people. It's sure, yeah. You know Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela. You know Buddha, Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. None of these people, none of them, represent the common ideas of masculinity. Right. Not one of them, and yet they are the people that we look to as who were world changers, right. absolute world changers, um, because they renounced they renounced aggression against others and approached the changing of the world with an open heart right you know i mean in my opinion what martin luther king did was he shamed and embarrassed america and i put canada in that group too sure yeah by by not by raising a gun but by lying down and letting the world see what it's like when a white policeman beats a helpless, uh, nonviolent, well spoken, intelligent, compassionate person on the ground because of the color of the skin. And and shamed people mm-hmm. about it. and it's the same reason the the Vietnam War was stopped. They were shamed by the images that came back. Right. And that wasn't if, if 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 not if Martin Luther King hadn't fought from a place of love, that would have never happened, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that revolution is over, it's, it's not, but, no. right. but to my mind, that is what, you know, masculinity is all about, it, it's about being a man, but being a man from a position of power, but a power based in love and compassion, not a power based in domination
0: it's come up a few times in the, the last few conversations i've had and i think i'd share this with you originally i'm holding this hypothesis for now it's still kind of a work in progress but i i i believe that all people are imperfect as <laughs> any of us are for sure and also that all people um are broken i believe there's a particular brokenness uh, amongst men and some might be a hairline fracture some might be a compound fracture But a big part of that, I believe, is much of the way that we raise boys and men in all parts of the world, to some degree, are around these very narrow constructs and ideas of what it means to be a mask. You know, man, it's, you know, don't cry. It's man up. Don't talk about your feelings. If somebody hits you, hit them back. So when you are just a young boy and you have these feelings that you are told you shouldn't have can't talk about, and it just kind of goes back under the surface and it festers somewhere. And it ends up manifesting itself somewhere else. And if you look at nearly every terrible act of violence or exploitation that's happening around the world, women are very much complicit in it. Women are actors in it. In many cases, it might be perpetrating it. But the vast majority of acts of terrorism to murder to exploitation of impoverished people in some developing country... These corporate psychopaths, you know, people in, in positions of government and whatnot, they're men. Yeah. And those men were once boys. Yeah. And at some point, I imagine many of them were told, don't cry, don't talk about your feelings, all of these sorts of things. And i we're missing something in terms of raising our boys because that place of love that you're talking about, I think absolutely 100% agree. But there's also something that's missing in that self-love, as cheesy and corny as it sounds. Like if you loathe some part of yourself, one of the easiest things that many people will turn to is trying to make other people feel bad about themselves.
1: Absolutely. When you are, you know, somebody once said all criticism is self-criticism. And I believe that that's true. When you are attacking somebody, I mean, you see this among televangelists, right? They're raging against homosexuals or, Mm -hmm. or whatever because they're so conflicted with their own sexuality. You know, and and you know they end up getting found out in some hotel room with a hooker and a stack of porno mags, right? <laughs> Inevitably, yeah. And you know because they're they're taking their and it's the same thing with you know this any type of hate or hatred is based on a internal hatred of some kind that's projected back outwards toward others, right? I think that's absolutely true. And you know we have culture, we have religions, like you know. Christianity is based upon the idea that man is a faulty creature, that you shouldn't trust yourself, that you can't trust yourself, and you certainly can't trust anyone who hasn't come to Jesus under the the sword itself. Right. And you know, and that so this is a this is a again this is a spiritual religious cultural societal type of teaching. This self-loathing that's gone through everybody and still exists still exists today. But I think, personally, w- one of the places in the Western world where we fail boys the most is school. And, you know, I'll, I'll speak my personal experience, but I think it happened to lots of people. Most parents, I believe, today are not that repressive and, you know, don't cry. They don't mind if their boys cry or talk. With, but when you go to school, you know, that's where most boys experience their first sense of failure. Right. And, and yeah. kids need success. And they need, like, the job of the education system should be to open up what's, to allow a child to unveil what is within them and to follow the path that is already within them. And I've seen this in friends of mine who've homeschooled their kids. These kids are, like, on another level. They've just, they've followed their passions and their interests, and they're good at this and they're good at that, and they don't hate certain stuff. Like, I I left school with... You know, an absolute loathing for it. And, and I recognize that some people do well, mm-hmm. but it is a, it is a basically a factory system. It is, yeah.
0: It's industrial yeah. Uh, and, and education. Yeah, and it's bad
1: for boys. It's especially bad for boys. Like, I mean, you look at kids, like the, the kid, you know, they're out running around having fun, they're being rambunctious, they're playing, and then it's like, sit down, shut the fuck up, listen to what yeah. I'm going to say and repeat it back to me the way I told you. And that is, it's, and, it, you know, I think that's where a lot of boys today go off the rails right away. And then, you know, okay, well, they need more discipline, they need more this than that. Maybe that will help them because their behavior is so sort of control, but that's not the problem.
2: Mm-hmm. The problem
1: is they were never allowed to be who they were. right And, you know, one thing we know, and... And school does not allow for proper socialization. There's not enough adults relative to the students that are there. And kids can't monitor their own behavior at that age with each other. So they end up getting into bullying and the cliques and all kinds of shit that would not happen if there was appropriate adult. But we think having one parent, one adult for 32 kids is appropriate. It's a
0: joke. Yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense at no. all. No.
1: And and you know, we think that we value the education system. We you know, when we don't spend a, you know, anywhere near what we should. The whole thing needs to be turned upside down.
0: Yeah, oh. <laughs> our system at a macro level of incentives and values is completely upside down. The fact that we were at a, a school uh, a parent council and and board meeting because uh, our our daughter's school is the capacity is something like 510 students last year it was at 792 this year it's already we're not even part way through we're already I think at 894 or something like that In a school that's supposed to fit, you know, just over 500. And there's increasing numbers of kids coming there because this area is desirable and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of new infill and whatnot. So when we were at this meeting and the, uh, you know, there was representatives from, you know, the Toronto District School Board and, you know, the the administration of the school and whatnot. And I, I went in very cynical on the administration. I'll be honest. I came out of that meeting thinking, holy shit, these people are really... I think, doing their level best to do what they can for our kids here, but the system itself is upside down. So what I didn't realize was in this area, you have all these developers that are putting up everything from high-rise condos to mid-rises to townhomes and whatnot, and many of them used to explicitly advertise themselves on the basis of the proximity to some good schools. Yeah, and just near our, our kids' school, there's 102 townhomes that have opened up that yeah. are maybe, you know, 300 meters from the school, which have a lot of kids in them. These developers, when they build out these huge complexes, pay nothing into the community in terms of infrastructure, yeah. in terms of schools and whatnot. So now it's back on the public system, which is already yeah. struggling for funding yeah. to somehow find some way to raise money. Yeah. And so they're doing an expansion in, in our kids' school, but we also know there schools not far from here in other areas that are already struggling, that don't even have yet what our kids' school have yeah. in the public system. Yeah. And they're further down in line because yeah. they don't have the same political clout. It shouldn't be like that. Yeah. No. At all. It doesn't make sense.
1: No, and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. The the point, the, One of the points you're making, which I agree with totally, is I, I'm not trying to condemn teachers. Mm-hmm. My wife is a teacher. My father yeah. was chairman of the school board. My brother is a teacher. You know, I, I come f- uh, from a family of educators. But, and there's tons of people trying to do the best they can. But the system, yeah. you know, it's the same thing with, with, you know, the criminal justice system. It's, you know, I, I, I don't believe that People join the police force so that they can, you know, be racist assholes and and beat people up. But that's what happens to a fair percentage of them Mm -hmm. because the system is built that way and there's a blue wall that closes and you go out and you see the worst in humanity every single day and you're not given the capabilities of dealing. They're not not taught how to de-escalate situations. They're, you know, like it's a whole hammer and anvil, you know, us and them system. So I... And and I think this is just important to point out. I, I believe, I absolutely fundamentally believe in the goodness of people. Agreed. But we have bad systems, and the systems need to be changed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't want to, you know, I one of, one of the poems that I was well-known for in, in the early days, it was one of my, you know, quote-unquote most successful ones, was called Teen Hunters. And it was really about... At a time when I was really terrified about my kid going out and running into trouble with the police, which which did happen, and and you know what was going to happen to him. Fortunately, he wasn't. You know, he's white, so and I and I go into that, and you know, so I wasn't completely freaked out, which I would have been if you know my nephew, for example, is not white, and uh, you know, that's a, another fear factor. But um, I know that there are good people out there, but I I dropped that poem because. I felt, even though it was true, that it was demonizing cops. And don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of trouble with the law growing up. I think the criminal justice system is absolutely a wreck. Mm-hmm. I think they have way too much power. I think They need to get their fucking act together. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to demonize them as people. I don't think that accomplishes anything. I don't think that moves the ball forward in any in any way. So I think we have to look at the belief systems that support these institutions.
0: And these institutions are also not infallible divine creations. Like we set up all these (laughs) systems. I'm not a huge Noam Chomsky fan, but there was this one thing that I've heard him say on a few occasions, which is in systems that are monstrous by design, even good people are inherently monstrous. And so you could be a really great person, kind, loving, warm, say hello to everybody, yeah, but you happen to be a white slave owner at yeah. a certain time period in in American history, and even though you're the nicest person ever, you're still a slave owner, and what you're doing is monstrous, and if you fast forward that to the weirdly abstracted, globalized corporate world that we live in today, you could be the kindest person, give up all your time to charity and volunteer, you know, you know walk old ladies across the street all day long. But you could be working in in a tobacco company that is, by design, knowingly killing people every day with its products. Yep. And so we live in this strange time. And if our incentive structures and our value systems that the institutions are based around yep. are wrong, there's almost nothing you can do that's good within them. You just have to over time, change those systems. Yeah, I,
1: I agree, absolutely. I mean, this is why the U.S. military, and I'm sure the Canadian military does the same thing, is recruits in, mm-hmm. you know, poor neighborhoods. This is, you know, because they, they use... And, I mean, war has always been an economic, you know, out for people. Yeah. And, and, if, and and you know, they use that. They sell scholarships. They, you know, they buy people's allegiance mm-hmm. through money. To, yeah. and And it's the same thing. They build prisons in these little towns, you know, where I where I'm living right now or spending at least half the years up in, in Bracebridge, there's a, uh, there's a minimum security place there. And, you know, of course the town economy is kind of built around it. I mean, Kingston is Kingston, Ontario's prison city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that system, the criminal justice system, the prison system is one of the most, you know, degrading, Debasing, dehumanizing, and ineffective mm-hmm. systems yeah. ever created. Like Canada is 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 you know in the dark ages as far as that's concerned. But and as you say, there's good people. They go in there. I need a job. I get a job. Personally, I would never take a job as a prison guard. I mm-hmm. unemployed, whatever. Yeah. I live out in the woods. I'm not going to be a slave over somebody like that. I I, I wouldn't take a job you know, in, in all kinds of different things like that. And and I don't understand people who do, but I recognize there's an economic motivation behind it. They're trying to feed their family. Yeah.
0: It's difficult. Well, if you take the case of, of cops, I agree. They see the things that an average cop will see, you know, in a month, most people will never see in a lifetime yeah. and hopefully n- never do. And, you know, bless those people who decide to put themselves in harm's way every single day, to, you know, be a first responder, to be a cop, to be a, you know, a firefighter, whatever it might be. But if you're a cop and day in, day out, you see people from a certain demographic behaving a certain way. And that is your entire lens. That's almost your entire lens on that group of people, whether that group of people is black or brown or living in a certain part or a certain socioeconomic strata. And your entire day is tied up with either paperwork and administration or covering your ass or actually dealing with those situations, you'd have to be a very realized person to step back away from that and take a broader vantage point and think about why is this actually happening? Yeah. Is there a bigger system at play here yeah. that's keeping this particular group of people impoverished, not giving them either equal opportunity or access to transit or jobs? What What's at play here? Is there a, a bigger system that's creating this situation that and and now I shouldn't just demonize everybody that has that same socioeconomic status or sa- same color of skin, and it's kind of an almost unrealistic expectation to have of a cop or someone in that situation. Yeah, it,
1: it is, but I, it is, it is. But but I also think that the training, you know that that should go on. Like the the, the training that they get is not the training that they actually need. And, no, and for by, sure. Even even nobody should be doing that job that long. That in like they should get out and exposed to other aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, the job shouldn't be dealing with the worst people all the time. You know, because as as we know, that corrupts your brain after a while. I mean, we've seen that over, over and over again, right? And um, I, I just think that, like, the way I view it is if you give somebody power over somebody else, that is a responsibility of the highest order.
2: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: when you have a badge and a gun... You're you are on a completely different level. And the moral behavior that must be expected from you is on a completely different level. Mm-hmm. But the training and the recruiting and all of that stuff does not bring people to that level. Right. You know, so I like you know, i I have nothing but respect for any officer of the law who's doing who's trying to make the world a better place and is trying to be fair and, and do all that. But we cannot tolerate those who are not doing it,
0: yeah, I had just read an article last week, and it's still making the rounds It was there's a a woman who is an officer in i think fifty one division downtown, and she's filed a case against that division for years of sexual harassment and rampant misogyny and sexual advances, and just made to feel so objectified so unwelcome and just just frankly disgusted by the behavior and that this wasn't a handful of individuals but this was a well, cultural a norm yeah. right within within there and when the people who we expect to uphold or enforce our laws are behaving in ways that we don't expect even of the average person on the street right
1: but those are those are kind of the qualities that we've built into those systems right mm-hmm. like the like yeah. like it like the military for example you're training people to be able to go somewhere and kill other people like that's at the end of the day what the name of the game from that perspective yeah. is yeah like you how naturally they're going to come back completely changed you you cannot kill another person or be trained how to do that and not be changed in some way. Mm -hmm. And you can't give somebody authority over other people and put them in a a system where, you know, like our our jails are, you know, disgusting, depraved places. And, you you know, we put people in there, we put them in shackles, like shit. You know, you're going to, people, as you said earlier, you put people in that environment, they're like, that's built into the system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like people are surprised about all the Pedoph- pedophilia within you know religious organizations and that well i mean th- these are organizations that demand absolute obedience mm-hmm. what what adult is going to surrender absolute obedience to somebody else like that they're not grown up themselves they're children sure yeah you know, by definition like that whole you know and they're most of them are deprived of any sexual outlet and they voluntarily do it and everything's taken care of for them it, it's 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 a it, the environment itself is ripe for attracting that type of. You
0: know. Yeah, I, I want. It's interesting because, like, looking at what's happened with within the Catholic Church and and you know, sort of the rampant exposure of essentially just rings of pedophiles like within the system. Whether many of these men went into that system already somewhat distorted to begin with or not, I I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. But they end up in a system that's now clearly doing something that every one of those individuals knows is wrong by the rule of law, is wrong based on what belief system they profess to uh, represent and, and sort of communicate. And yet they all protect each other. So there is the, it's,
1: that's what pisses. That is the worst thing. Yeah. And that's the same thing with the police. It's the same thing with prison guards. It's the same thing with uh, all of those groups. Like, It's one thing to have people who are doing extraordinarily monstrous behavior, but to have the other people protect them Mm -hmm. and hide them and allow that to continue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think any of these terrible things cannot happen with a small handful of individuals. You need to have the complicity of a lot of people to make it work. Uh, An act of war isn't a president or a prime minister just declaring war and suddenly things happen. That means that everybody has bought into, at best or at worst, is willing to sacrifice whatever their own belief might be on whether that particular war is just or not, and is willing to just follow orders to go along with it. That complicity is, is essentially necessary for the system to work that way. And I think that that's part of the reason that we've found ourselves in this this predicament continually. Like this rise of populism that we're seeing Brexit perfect example uh sort of a mob mentality based around a false premise that you know UKIP and Nigel Farage fell back on like immediately after the Brexit vote the rise of populism and this you know sort of this right leaning bizarrely populist movement in America the, the same type of movements taken hold in India and you know that people are being they're getting beaten they're being tortured they're being maligned in the public eye and it takes a number of people around a person doing that to say, yeah, keep doing it, right? Every time Trump rips into some female reporter, he's got all his cronies in the background laughing at his jokes, right? Yeah. That craziness, that maniacal tendency always needs an entourage, right? And there is an entourage within the Catholic Church, or at least elements of the Catholic Church. There is entourages pretty much in every single yeah. religious organization around the world yeah. and in every government. And but But yet we're... I don't. I don't know what the answer is here. Is just that we know this is true, and yet I don't know that we're moving the needle quite as much as we could be. No, I, no, I, I don't think we
1: are. <laughs> and I, I don't know what the answer is, but but I, I do know that it doesn't lie in a a condemnation, and I, I think. I think the way we've been approaching solving these problems is not working, Mm -hmm. obviously.
0: Yeah. You and I, we were talking about this earlier, and and I think we agree in large part. When someone has an opinion that you don't like, or if you don't believe that that particular person, based on their race or social class or background, should hold that opinion, And you just, uh, you know, someone would just blanketly demonize them or degrade them, maybe call them a basket of deplorables or just call them bigoted or racist or chauvinist or what have you. You just shut down the conversation. You shut down any opportunity to actually understand what the underlying root cause of that feeling is and uh, it's it's my belief that that's actually the large in large part the one of the huge contributing factors to the rise of someone like Trump to a lot of this polarization you're seeing between yep. uh people because we just we like to talk to people that agree with us yeah and uh or that we believe should have that view and we don't like to talk to people that don't agree with us because it makes us uncomfortable
1: yeah and 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 you know there's certain subjects that now you're not even really allowed to talk mm-hmm. about like you you can talk about race but you can't really talk about race, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in a way that... Because if you say anything mildly inappropriate, as termed, you're you're deemed a racist or, mm-hmm. or, or, or what have you. So naturally, nobody wants to engage in that discussion.
0: Right. So what
1: happens is that discussion goes underground, it becomes more, you know, it gets stronger and weirder and, and all of that sort of stuff. Like, we, we don't live in an, an environment that encourages open and honest discussion, unless you're just talking to somebody that agrees with you. Yeah, I was talking about this with, with friends today, like in the universities today, um, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody who's right wing shows up to speak, you know, they're booed down there, you know, there's student protest. It, it's like, it, it's almost as if the, you know, like the, the people have been, the, there's so much angst and horror about what has happened to certain people, whether it's for their their gender or their sexual orientation or their color that they're basically acting the same way toward other groups now right and it and it's seen well if you attack the right in any way shape or form is okay because it's the right but that's completely wrong it, it yeah. it's like to my mind it's not whether you hate a particular racial group or a particular sexual orientation the problem is that you hate
0: Period. It doesn't yeah. matter who yeah. the target is. Yeah.
1: That's irrelevant. <laughs> you know, and, 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 but we find it very easy to hate haters, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's, it's a weird, it's a very, very weird thing. I, I wrote a poem, you know, one of the, back ago, I don't do it anymore, but it's called the Hymn, Hymn to the Revolution. And it's basically about the idea of how often we become that which we fight against. Right. You know, we are transformed into that which we're fighting against and how rare it is. You know, and I think, you know, I think people that we hold up like like Shea and Castro, you know, people on the left hold up. These people were not ideal human beings. No. I mean, fucking Shea threw people out of helicopters, Mm -hmm. you know, and 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 Castro has, you know, repressed his people, you know, whether you're for, you know, since he got in there, it was a good idea gone very, very bad. Yeah. And and I think that people on the left and the right, and I agree with you that those terms are useless and divisive, but for shorthand, I think they work. We need to look at, at, at our own weaknesses, mm-hmm. our own, like, we're so quick to point out what the other people are doing wrong, but not willing to take stock of what we're doing. Wrong. And I see this, you know, I consider myself on the left And, you know, the people I generally associate with and, you know, especially in the poetry community and all that, but I've seen episodes of behavior, which I think border on fascism. You know, when, when somebody says something that they don't agree with, it's like that person is excommunicated, you know, there's no due process, there's no anything. Yeah. And it's, it's this real totalitarian reactionary thing that we have to be, I think we have to be careful about. and you know, uh, to speak of, you know, the devil himself, J- Jordan Peterson, I think this is one of the things that's happened with him, is, is he said things, and he's been labeled as this sort of antichrist.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and you may agree or disagree with some of the things that he said, but he's, he's never said anything remotely bad, as people have labeled him and sort yeah. of put him in this package, and, and, you know, to even mention him in anything but absolute condemnation to anybody on the left you're seen as a lunatic?
0: Yeah, no, nobody yeah. is that simple. No, we're exactly. all complex. Everything is. Nuanced. We are all complex creatures. There are many. I mean, Che, great example. Castro, another interesting example. You know, at, at, a, at a global level, there's there's very few people where, if you were to really dig deep, everything about them would be great and perfect. Right. Even Gandhi, for all of the incredible. Uh, things that he did and and the example that he set, there's enough accounts of his bizarre, you know, womanization yeah. even as a s- somewhat, you know, ascetic or at least you know, sort of visibly ascetic sure. individual. You know, there's there's enough things about him that were negative. His own family life, his relationship with his sons, yeah, sucked. Yeah, you know, th- there there's a lot of things to dislike or disagree with or not necessarily celebrate about him, but that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. No. In the same way that there are, I find that it's just so easy to say, Jordan Peterson is terrible, yeah. he's 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 the devil and stuff. Well, no, like, listen to everything that he's written or read everything he's r- written or at least enough of what he's written and listen to enough of what he's talking about. You will find points that you disagree with and, and agree with, and let's take each of those as individual Yeah, elements. and
1: I think if you care about... Uh, you know, if you if you're interested in in men's issues and the future of masculinity and and the the problems and challenges and benefits, all all of that of, of what we're facing with with men. You, I think you owe it to yourself to look at why he is resonating with millions of people. What is he saying? Mm-hmm. That that men who normally do not go to psychological lectures, these are things, are showing up in in throngs. You know, 90% of his audience is male. You go to most other other, anything other than a sporting event, I guarantee you, the majority is not male. Right. And so he's saying something which is resonating people. Even if you completely disagree with it, you owe it to yourself as a as a student of, of life and of people to understand what he's saying and why that is resonating with people. Yeah. You know, and I think it's the same thing with Trump. You know, I believe me, I think the guy's the orange Hitler, but <laughs> you you we you need to understand on some level why he is appealing to people and not mm-hmm. dismiss it uh without going a little deeper than saying, you know, they're you know, they're not Stupid, simple minded people. There's things much deeper than that.
0: In his case, he and this entire movement were dismissed, and it was dismissed at the peril of millions. Because I can only imagine at that point in time in 2016, in many circles, to come out and say, I'm voting for Trump would have been instant backlash, demonization, shutdowns, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're this, that, and the other thing. And Of course, probably tens of thousands of people who support Trump may well be many of those things, but many may not explicitly be those things, or they have a real grievance. There's something that's really bugging them that they don't even necessarily understand. They don't know why their jobs have left. They don't know why so much is being outsourced. They don't know why people are showing up from Indian IT companies, and they're having to cross-train these people to take over their own jobs at half the pay. They don't understand the forces that are at play at a level up but they have this concern. Yeah. And if you don't talk to them about what that concern yeah. is, you don't even have an opportunity to address it You know, yeah. in what may be the correct way. Yeah. And so all of those people with that opinion, or at least many of those people, I believe, would have gone underground unless they were within their own echo chambers. And lo and behold, we have someone like Trump in power. I can... I can imagine many people probably would have walked out of just sheer disgust with the DNC and said, like, you guys basically sold out, you know, Bernie, we're just walking across, we're going to vote for Trump, because at least he talks to us, Yeah. you know, versus you elite politician, yeah. you know, with your fiefdom. And so if we don't talk to each other, and we just say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're an idiot, we don't let you speak on campus because we think you're yeah. right wing or whatnot. We don't even get a chance to hear what you're saying, see what's resonating, and then have a dialogue about it to yeah. unpack it. Yeah and i like you believe in the goodness of people i believe most people are born good there are probably a handful of true yep. psychopaths on the planet but we as collectively start to behave almost psychopathically when we separate ourselves into these tribes yeah. around some division and then yeah, just... and it's
1: a very odd like this the i call it the othering mm-hmm. you know we turn yeah. people into the other you know i was in rwanda a while back and i was dreading going to the genocide museum cuz just you know, the sheer horror of it. And of course, the question that's in my mind is like, how can it happen? Like, how can it happen? But then it's mapped out very quite clearly how it did happen in the sense of the country was colonized Mm -hmm. multiple times. And what the colonizers did is they took one group of people who looked slightly different, they were a minority, and they put them in the power position over the majority. And they gave them the rewards and they got enforced all the rules. So they fostered intense hatred between a small minority gave them the power over the large majority who were the who were subjugated and then when it was you know colonial period was coming to an end they walked out and said okay now you can vote and of course the majority had been subjugated by this minority all this time mm-hmm. and they've been taught to hate each other right and uh you know and you can see how and then it got on the radio and they were you know discussing these uh, you know the it was it, it was illegal to hire a member of this minority group who'd been the oppressors. It was illegal to befriend them as neighbors, to marry them, to have them in your... And there was this whole process of othering, turning them into the monsters and the beasts. Mm-hmm. And you can see how this happens over and over and yeah. over again. And it's happening right now politically. You know, there's people I know on the left who think the right are monsters, and I have people know on the right who think, you know, the left are monsters. And neither of them are. Yeah. You know, there there of course there's extremists. And un- both are un- dehumanizing other. the other in yes, doing so. Exactly. And we if, if we you don't e it's not about I don't even think it's about finding agreement. I don't I don't think a lot of these things we can find agreement on. But I think we can acknowledge the validity of what other people are feeling mm-hmm. and use that as a bridge to come to some sort of ability to compromise and live together. And I think as a species, that's what we've all you know they talk about us as a very competitive species and in very evolutionary terms, but the history of humanity is a history of cooperation. We cannot survive as individuals. We can't. We're we're instantly into families and tribes and groups, Mm -hmm. and we're at a point now where all these tribes have broken down, and it's a global, you know, we got this, you know, global thing happening, and of course some of us are running back into our little tribes and those things, but it's a fascinating time.
0: When we get into situations of conflict... Well, for one, part of the reason that I even thought about this podcast and getting a Woken Word off the ground was, um, and I, I don't know who said it, I'm sure many have said it, but there's really only two ways to solve a conflict, and that's either violence or conversation. And right. we know where the first one leads every right. single time, yeah, inevitably. So conversation is is really it. This is our primary medium right. of, of exchange. And what we do is we make the idea and the issue and the person all the same entity we conflate right. all three yes. and we don't separate <laughs> the we don't separate the three yeah. which yeah. is tragic because particularly on the I'm going to use air quotes here that no one can see but on the left this idea of identity politics you as a middle-aged white man uh-huh. are authorized to say certain things yep. and not say other things yep. by by some moral police that's out there yep i as a 40-year-old brown-skinned man, I'm authorized to say certain things, but not authorized to say other things. So there is some central governing body that no one's elected that's policing all of this stuff. So if you talk about, and perhaps you've run into this situation, I imagine you would have, if you talk about, yes, there is a history of oppression of perhaps uh, blacks or aboriginals or whatnot in this country, and at the same time still invoke that there is still an element of individual agency and making decisions and taking personal responsibility. Many people would say, "Yeah, that makes sense." But there will inevitably be somebody that says, "How dare you as yeah, you middle-aged sure. white man you are yep. supposedly the, the perpetrator of all these evils. Yep. How dare you say that?" And what's ridiculous there is that because of the color of your skin, you can't say that, which is supposedly the exact thing that we're fighting against. Yeah. And I've run into this situation many times. I don't feel that society at large gives me the same license to say certain things about issues that affect women. And I haven't lived in the skin, at least not in this life, of of a woman. So I don't necessarily feel like I have as much license to speak about that. But I do have opinions on other things. And there is someone out there that this mob, this unseen mob of moral police that are policing that. And so the idea itself gets ignored, it's left sort of undiscussed, unaddressed and it just festers and it, you know, sort of surfaces in some other way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think we do live, and I understand the roots of it. Like I understand that, you know, that there has been so much oppression that, you know, that, and, and people are rising from it and they have a, a, there's a, there's an anger and a rage that, 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 that people feel, but, we, we still, you know, change is a slow, mm-hmm. it's a slow process. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, I just, all, I, I just worry again, I come back to, we don't want to become that which we're fighting against. Of course, yeah. You know, which I think just happens so often. But I, I admire people who are willing to, to step outside of that boundary and, and say unpopular things, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I think this is, you know, I don't want to come across as a Jordan Peterson defender because I'm not. But I think this is one of the things that he's done is he's pointed out that that the left can be as totalitarian as the right. And I think we all thought, you know, that mm-hmm. the devil was going to come from the right. But it's coming from both sides. And, yeah. and I think whatever side you're on, you have to be willing to acknowledge the both the, the the value and the shortcomings
0: of your position. Well, I mean, what it was that saying the 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 greatest trick the devil ever played was, yeah. you know, <laughs> convincing the world that he didn't exist. Yeah. But maybe a second best one is that he's coming at you from both sides. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I- interestingly, uh, just on a related note, I, I was talking about this uh, with Roger Christian, um, the Star Wars art director, when he was in here. I'm about to say something that if the only thing you listen to in this, in this episode is just a statement will be misconstrued and will probably vilify me. (laughs) But I believe that society at large conspires to keep women subjugated and less intelligent than they could be. In, In fact, sort of rewards dumbness or intelligence and, I thought maybe I'm crazy, maybe it's really not that rampant, but it solidified one day when I was at a a shopper's drug mart nearby at this drug store, for those who don't know. And they had a a flat magazine wall. And I looked from left to right. So you sort of picture yourself turning your head 180 degrees. And on the left were what would be the women's magazines. And everything is a, a gradation of different topics. And when I looked at this from left to right, I thought, if you drew a line down the middle, everything that's targeted to women, there's almost nothing that's visibly, explicitly about generally things that we might think of as more sort of academic or intellectual. Most of it is just, it's just stuff to satiate like a short-term gain. Whereas the news, the information, the insights, the science, the technology, all of that stuff was given to men. And then there was some nonsense on the side. And I thought, we have an entire industry, many millions of dollars being poured into all these magazines. And if you look at our balance of values on this wall, what we're giving our girls and women versus what we're giving our men are not congruent. And I know for a fact now having a a daughter who's seven, she is as if not more interested in science, technology, music production, loves hanging out in the studio, nerding out about space and dinosaurs and all of these sorts of things. She dressed up as a SWAT officer for Halloween last year, but she put on a little pink bow under her, her SWAT hat. She is a complex individual at seven. She likes a lot of different stuff, but if I was to take her to a magazine rack and say, okay, find something that resonates with you, it'd be pretty hard for her to find that in this left half of the the magazine rack. And it was the first moment where I realized we've still got a long way to go on that front.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I would... I would suggest, and this will get me vilified if this is all you're listening to in this podcast, if there was more of a mark, if women were really interested in certain things and men were really interested in certain other things, there would be magazines which catered to them and they would be successful. So I, I think part of it, and, and I don't think it, the situation is as grim as you painted it, because, for example, when it comes to literature, poetry, mm-hmm. fiction, women read 80, 90% yep. of it. Men are idiots. Yeah, you
0: know, it's, just, yeah, we are. It's true.
1: Yeah, so yeah. so I I understand what you're saying, but I think I think that's only part of the equation, um, you know. And I think you know the data suggests that women as a group are not as interested in science and technology, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know, and men are interested in more things and objects and stuff like that, which is interesting because you know I am um, heterosexual male. I've never, for a second, felt unmale, but I'm not like that at all. I'm not interested in cars. I'm not interested in mm-hmm. things. I'm interested in ideas. I'm interested yeah. in literature. I'm interested in poetry. I love the UFC. Don't get me wrong, but it's more common <laughs> ground there. Yeah, yeah, but it's. Um, I I think that we are, you know, we're these things that we use to define masculinity and femininity. Sure, they're they're generally group true, but mm-hmm. there's so many exceptions, right? And and if you look at, you know, if you look at nature in general, individuation is everywhere yeah, absolutely. in everything, you know. So, you know, I, I think there are differences between men and women, and I think they play mm-hmm. out on the magazine rack. But I also think, you know, there's a flip side to that as well, that, you know, uh, women are deeply invested in in literature and in stories and, and stories about humanity and story. And you know, like we wouldn't have half the art we had that is popular in sure, the world. Yeah. All the great literature, if if women weren't uh, reading it,
0: there are differences between men and women, and difference does not mean better or worse. No, that uh, that is yeah. the
1: central problem.
0: Yeah, is and, that people equi-
1: think if you point out any kind of difference, yeah, you're saying one is worse than one is better than the other. Yeah. It's ridiculous.
0: And equality does not mean homogeneity. Does nope. not mean the same. So, and I think again that that's that's something that ends up getting conflated. Yeah, I think there are at a group aggregate level, there are maybe trends you can spot between what would someone who would be a biological male versus female. But even within those populations, you're going to have a whole gamut of different interests.
1: Yeah, the things, you know, I've talked about this and I'm going to talk about this probably at this masculinity seminar as well. The things that I like, I'm I'm very comfortable as a guy, I'm comfortable around guys, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm comfortable in. You know all of those type of environments, but the things that I prize about myself the most are things that would be primarily considered feminine, you know my ability to relate to people, mm-hmm. um you know my love of words uh you know all you know these my my intuitiveness, like those sort of things things that help me write poetry right the things that help me uh you know my emotionalism like these are all. And I don't think any of those things make me any less male. Right, yeah. You know? yeah. And I remember, you know, This American Life did a—do you know that podcast? Uh, yeah, I do, yeah. 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 So they did a, a thing years back on testosterone, or how do you I don't know how to pronounce that? Uh, testosterone. And it was really funny because as part of the arc of the story, they had mm-hmm. everybody on the This American Life team tested to get their level Okay. Of course so everyone is terrified because of a guy over there testosterone. Yeah. And it turned out of course the guy who had the most whose name I forget but was a uh, a gay Canadian. Okay. <laughs> and he was just you know just throws the whole ideas that yep. we have about what what it means to be man and what it means to be masculine. We are all this you know beautiful mélange
2: yeah, of yeah, of, absolutely. of
1: characteristics. And I you know the way I look at it almost spiritually that I think male and female are different ways of experiencing the world.
0: You know, Mm -hmm. they're
1: different ways of kind of, 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 you know, almost the way God sees. I don't think God sees in those dynamics. I think God is all things, in my opinion, and, you know, is beyond gender and all that, uh, those silly ideas that we have. But I believe that those are you know, the, they're, they're faces of experience, they're ways of exploring and experience.
0: Thankfully. Yeah, and we, and we, again, just, we conflate male and female with masculine and feminine. Right. And right. for much of right. human history right. in many parts of the world, you can have masculine and feminine characteristics or tendencies and interests, and, and, and society has just known that, certain civilizations have just known that, and it was just a norm, without that necessarily making you defining you as, as man or woman. Right. So uh, we were talking earlier about Sebastian Younger and his, his book Tribe, which I, I love and right. highly recommend anyone read. Right. He was talking about a mine in Quebec some years ago that I guess the mine shaft had collapsed in on of itself after some mishap. And so all of these miners were stuck several kilometers underground and they were all men. And the first round of men that kind of stepped up to take leadership roles were the sort of traditional alpha male that were like, okay, everyone just pick up anything you can. we got to dig our way out of here. And when they realized the futility of trying to dig themselves out of this coal mine, you know, several kilometers underground, a different type of leader emerged. But it was still a man, the, the one that would talk to other men about what they're feeling, everyone kind of being in this one shared experience of not knowing whether they were going to live to see tomorrow. And they would be nurturing and they would let the other men cry and talk to them and comfort and console them. Two very different types of leadership. Right. One that you could say is quote unquote masculine, the other one quote unquote feminine, but they're all still men. Yeah. And and this is I think, you know, to your point earlier about the schoolyards and schools in general, that dynamic, even if at home you're you're allowed to cry and talk about your feelings and stuff, the moment you go into a schoolyard or into a classroom and you have a certain energy or you're interacting with other boys, there's a certain dynamic that's playing out there that's a whole cacophony of different forces that each of those boys are dealing with now. And if you cry in front of a bunch of boys in a schoolyard in grade three, for example, there's probably a pretty good chance that you will be picked on and made fun of and it will be remembered in a different way than if you were a girl that was there crying. And that's just really sad because you're just a human being with feelings and emotion and you should just regardless of who you are or whether you throw on a jeans or a skirt or whatever, like you should just be comfortable in your skin as yeah, a human and, being.
1: And you know what? At the end of the day, there we have these masks and we have these facades and but behind them, you know, people on their deathbeds, people who as a parent, you know, when your kid is in trouble. Any of these or 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 when your parent is dying or or whatever these it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. That core of you is all about connection and relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, when you're, you know, stripped down to it, that's really what makes us human. Now we express that in very different ways. Right. And we compartmentalize it in different ways and we hide it in different ways. But the core of our being is is I believe identical in in that sense. You know, you 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 see any parent whose kid is in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't care if they're the Hulk; they're going to be in the room weeping. Yeah, because it's so primal to who to who you are, mm-hmm. and you know that's what being human is. Yeah. In fact, that's what consciousness is, because it doesn't matter. You know, animals have the exact same mm-hmm. you know reaction.
0: Yeah, It's a good point because just getting back to this polarization, like we, at the end of the day, I believe most people are inherently good, may well be living in systems that don't make that very easy, but are inherently good. And most of us just want to live in peace. Ideally would, you know, for those who want to have a family, would like to raise that family in peace, have their kids go to school, have their kids be happy and healthy, we all generally want the same things. There yeah. are a small handful of people who just really yeah. want everything for themselves. But if we if we all want that, and if we could at least just start there and yeah. say, like, a, a, however we chose to get there, get here to this table, we want something that's very similar. Let's start there in terms of what's common. Yeah. And yeah, we have differences, but we shouldn't necessarily look down or up at one another for having those differences. For sure. And uh, sure. I think we, you know, maybe the conversations like this are just uh, are part of that. I'm curious to know in your in your eyes, as an artist, as a, a poet, as a writer, what is the role of art in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean that's such a huge <laughs> question. I, I, like the way I, you know, I feel it's interesting because I know some people who feel the wor- the role of art is to, you know, move a social movement forward. You know that that political art is the best. I, I think artists have to do what they are internally called to do, full stop. I think the artist's role is to follow their own muse, and that is, I think, almost by definition going to be outside the borders of generally what some people are are, are accepting. You can do lots of art within the borders, and lots of people do, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the art, the role of the artist is to follow their own muse wherever that Will take them right, and I think that'll take some people one place and and but i don't I don 't feel as an artist that I have a responsibility to push a particular social agenda. I push my philosophy because I believe in it and and I want to share it but i don't feel that i'm responsible for other people's um, you know reaction to it or that I have a job to educate them and and I also think um you know, I I think art is a way of experiencing the world outside of the framework of the way that we typically do. Like, if, for example, I was in a national park in Quebec last week. And this was a tundra park uh, called Parc de Grand Jardin. And they had this big copper, big square copper, like, uh, I don't know, 30 feet by 30 feet, and it had a cutout of a caribou. The caribou was cut out of it. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: and this was to symbolize the disappearance of the caribou from this area. So, had this big copper thing, and basically was a, a negative relief of the caribou. And then that thing, that caribou that they had cut out of that copper plate, they placed about 100 yards back in the, on, on the tundra. Okay. And this was an example of this is the caribou coming back. And it was such a great artistic, because the caribou have come back into that region or right right. now there, and it was such a great like i I don't think you can as an artist I think you just have to like whoever thought of that idea of 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 using one piece of uh metal or whatever it was to do both you know the devastation of the of the environment and the consequences of that of it and the return of it. It was just a beautiful way of looking at the world differently, and I think that's what art is it's seeing the world differently and communicating it in a way that people who don't see the world differently can see it that
0: way mm-hmm. it's a it's almost a making an abstract idea tangible for yeah. someone else
1: with emotion right like I think ideas i think in for me anyway i resonate with art that that is both intellect and emotion willed together because mm-hmm. without emotion it doesn't get any purchase with me doesn't grab me doesn't, doesn't do anything and uh but otherwise you know and and i you know i also have some other i guess rather weird ideas about art as far as poetry is concerned anyway like, one thing you hear about poetry, like, the worst criticism one poet can ever throw at another, and I'm talking about more page poetry, more literary right. poetry, is 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 being too sentimental. And I think that's ridiculous. Like, I, I think sentimentality is a core human characteristic, mm-hmm. but it's, it's seen as almost hallmarkish, and it's sort of berated. But the poems that make you cry are the poems you remember. You know, the poems that that drag you into another emotional territory Mm -hmm. and expose you to something. And, you know, Ian Ketek, taught me, he actually said to me, uh, slam is a sport of emotion. Right. I was like, wow, like, that's such a crazy idea. You know, most people think of it as a, it's almost like this, I don't know, they look at it as a, it's a more of a, you know, political campaign or something. But when you wield, like... when you wield politics to emotion, or you you know, it, when you combine those ideas together, suddenly they have power and purchase that they don't have any other way. So I, I'm I'm very sentimental. In mm-hmm. the, I'm sentimental in the poetry I write. I'm not ashamed of it. And in the page poetry I write under a different name, it's very much like that. And you know, so I, I don't buy a lot of what people think art has to be. I especially find it interesting
0: that so language is not completely separate from the culture from which it emerges. Never. Fortunately, I, thanks to my parents and a lot of old school Hindi movies, <laughs> I was growing up in, in small towns in Alberta. I managed to learn to speak Hindi. I can't read or write it, but I, I, I can speak quite fluently actually for most people who meet me, who do speak Hindi are, are quite surprised that I was born and raised here. Good um, for you,
1: man. What a gift.
0: But, and and so and and a lot of the 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 North Indian languages that are offshoots of it or related to it are similar enough that I can you know I can understand at least generally the theme so I can understand Punjabi or at least you know maybe a more uh mainstream Punjabi and What I find interesting is English is a bizarre language first mm. of all, unlike most languages, it is not generally phonetic or at least there' so many exceptions that you don't even know what the rule is anymore. Particularly, you know, when you have immigrant parents trying to pronounce words like colonel. And I like I still can't get my mother to say like she still says colonel, you know, because of the way it's spelled. And you can't explain why it's spelled that no. way. So there's the the non phonetic element uh within English, but I think also English because of its emergence out of a specific specific region of Europe and then also it flourishing. From a literary standpoint, at certain periods in time, is a reflection of that time and culture. So, as poetic as you can be with English, I don't find that I've seen the same level of color in the way certain things are phrased. For example, like in in Hindi or in Urdu, there's multiple words for love that can have a different connotation that's romantic or family or whatnot. And you would talk about. A woman's hair is the colors of the rainbow, you know, sort of draped in dark clouds and whatnot. And it sounds almost ridiculous to say in English. But if you hear it in Hindi, even many of like modern like songs in film are actually quite poetic. But because the language, A, lends itself to that, but also culturally, it gives itself the freedom to express itself that way. And I think that you could say those same things in English but it would be deemed as almost corny and cheesy right. or overly sentimental right. based on the cultural context we live in. And and so I find that being able to speak even just one other language has really kind of helped open my mind up to, A, better dad jokes and puns, um, <laughs> which I have a shitload of, uh, you know, at the misfortune of my family. But I even look at English in a different way yeah. as a result of that. And I wrestle sometimes with, I want to say this, I know how to say it in Hindi, I'd love to be able to say it in a way in English that doesn't just sound like gratuitously corny. And I haven't been able to figure that out.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. Um, And like, I think what what many people don't realize is that English as every language, let me just back it up, every language gets more complicated over time. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the rings of a tree that you can tell how old a, ling- a language is by how complicated it is. Sure. And yeah. every generation complicates it unnecessarily, but it's just human nature. You know, like, for example, there's no reason for gender that, you know, like the French, that, you know, le, you know that a beard is feminine and breasts are masculine, to put le la, la on things. There's no reason for that. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. But every generation adds something to it and all of these things. and And, you know, all of the languages that, You know, French, Italian, uh, Portuguese, Romanian, Spanish, they were all at one time just bad Latin. Mm
0: -hmm. Like that's
1: the weird Latin. They speak in French, in France, and then it evolved into French. So every language is constantly changing and growing. But English, the Norse, when they conquered Great Britain, they learned English as a second language, and they simplified it. So English used to have all of those male and feminine indicators in it, Mm -hmm. and they dropped them all and because of its relationship with its colonial history and everything else english is a melange of all mm-hmm. these other things which is you're right it's a dog's breakfast right this this crazy language but I, I i you know it's so interesting when they hear you say that i didn't know that about hindi like i knew that I, you always hear about inuit has you know 30 different words for snow or whatever but I never heard that there was all these different words in Hindi for love and the different type of love and all yeah. of that kind of stuff.
0: Even relationships. So there is a different word for nearly every major, um, I'd say, second-degree family relationship. So uh, your father's older brother or brothers would be your His younger brother would be Chacha. Mom's brother would be Mama. Your mom's sister would be Masi your mom's sister's husband would be Masar. So there's a different word for every major relationship, right? I mean, A, there's a different word, so it helps, especially with Indian families being so big, it's easy to kind of point out who's who. Yeah. yeah, Right. Like, okay, I get the relationship there. Yeah. But it also inherently in that it's signaling that there's a special reverence placed on each individual relationship. Right. Right. But then one thing that I found particularly interesting about Hindi, and I think this is a uniquely Indian thing in Indian adaptability. And partly, I think it's also the cultural adaptability of India. There's, if you go in the big cities like Delhi and Mumbai and stuff, it's hard to find somebody that speaks pure Hindi, somebody that can go through a full one minute of conversation and not use any words in English. And so um, what's happened with with Hindi, at least in the mainstream sense, is it's turned into Hinglish, right? Like yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, Hindi and English together. And so it has evolved in some strange way where I hear a lot of people who are Spanish speakers or speak Polish. We were yeah. just in, in Peru in May and you know the Spanish and the Quechua that's that's spoken by, by people there, you hear almost no English there. Mm. And so I think that says par- perhaps partly something about their exchange with the world, but also maybe right. their reverence for what their language is and that they're willing to kind of hold on to that. So it, it's just interesting that language everyday language, poetry, it yeah. says something about a people and a time and it place. It does, and,
1: I, and I've heard that about the Quran, for example, is that, um that it, it I, you know, I can't read it, obviously, in Arabic, but I've heard that it's it's poetry, mm-hmm. that the whole book is just like, the, you read it, the words just flow, and, you know, of course, there's these people in the mosque who memorize the whole book, and it, it's basically like a series of poems, and... And, you know, and I'm envious because I wish I could, you know, if I could change one thing about humanity, it would be that you could pick up languages with ease your whole life. Well, I'd probably change a few other things. Sure, yeah. yeah. But but what a great way to, you know, to be able to learn other people's languages and insights into their cultures and that. And, uh, you know, I I think, and and I'm not sure that English is a particularly poetic language, but, you know, people do beautiful things with it, Mm -hmm. so, and it's...
0: Yeah, I I don't know if it's particularly poetic, but English is incredible, and it's incredible because it's also probably on a global scale the first yeah. real evolving yeah. thing. Like, every person in every part of the world has put some sort of stamp on it, and everyone can, I mean, it sounds maybe odd to use the word appropriate, but they can appropriate it for their own means in the same way that Black America and, you know, more currently hip-hop culture has appropriated I- English and then... Taking it and giving it entirely its own flair. And I think and it's that's fabulous. Culture. It is. It's incredible. You know,
1: and when I hear these people complaining about the change in the language, like you're out of your mind. Like first off, that's what happens all the time. Yeah. Like take a, read a history book. Yeah. Like go to a Shakespeare. I take my wife to, you know, we went to see Midsummer Night's Dream and Stratford, Shakespeare. She couldn't understand any of it because mm-hmm. she doesn't come from an English background. Like English has changed that much yeah. that even though she's perfectly fluent... If you know, old English like is, is like another yeah. another language. And it's not even
0: that long ago. No, it's yeah.
1: not even that long ago. And and everything and I love the fact that hip hop changes the language. I love the fact that the language is constantly evolving. And and you know, it's interesting. This is what I say about when I think is the power of poetry. I heard a guy talk about this on a podcast. I thought, my God, that's so true. Is that like you look at the Bible and the reason those stories are in there is that they're poetic. Like, the prophets were all poets. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't saying anything anyone else didn't say. They just said it in a poetic way. You know, and and I think, you know, it, like, you you think of the greatest speeches of all time, the greatest things is people have taken ideas and they've expressed them in a way that your mind just goes, wow, it's like a fire in your mind, right? It's so interesting and, and captivating. Yeah. And, and I don't know what it is, but I know it when I read it. <laughs> yeah, and, like?
0: and I think that's also a sign of at that time for most of human history, most of humanity has been illiterate. Yeah. So if you need to communicate something, we have this inherent rhythm, you know, that we're hardwired for. You deliver it in poetry or in folk song or in pop song. That's how it gets remembered. I mean the entire uh Mahabharat, the entire Gita, all of the original four books of Vedic or Hindu thought, the Vedas all of those were just oral poetry that's right. that yeah. were yeah, memorized and recited and probably evolved over time, over thousands of years. Yeah. And even if they were written down, there's no one, there's a handful of people that could read it. So you needed to deliver it that way. And I think that's something that's been lost uh, today. Like language is, is very powerful. I, you, you mentioned Shakespeare. I had a chance to meet just this summer Probably my favorite rapper and 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 hip hop artist and just like an all around guy, this guy Akala, who's from the UK. He's uh, I've seen many of his talks online. Okay, many of his interviews. He is a historian of an incredible caliber. He I think his specifically his area of of interest and expertise has been in in Black history, Mm. uh, Pan African diasporic experience. Mm -hmm. But he is very well versed in many things. He beyond being an incredible hip-hop artist with really intelligent, lyrically dense music, he is also a regular speaker at Oxford. He's wow. always on the BBC on different uh, talk shows talking about um, everything man. from politics. So. Like, the guy's incredible. So he's basically taken hip-hop, and he's taken Shakespeare back. He's very well-read and versed in all things Shakespeare. He's actually started a company called the Hip-Hop Shakespeare Company. And he brings <laughs> Shakespeare <laughs> to kids through the form of hip hop and rap, because he pointed out that if you look at Shakespearean English and you look at all of his works, his sonnets, his songs, his plays, and you look at the stanzas, there is a clear rhythmic structure. Oh, because for this sure. was not Shakespeare was not intended to be read. It was intended to be performed. Right. And the audience for which it was performed was largely illiterate. Right. And so Shakespeare is performance poetry. And oh, so he's absolutely. basically brought that into the into the modern age. And it's interesting because now Shakespeare is seen as this beacon of snooty yeah. uh, English yeah. culture, yeah. when really it was looked down upon in its yeah. own time, and really would have been its own time's version of hip hop, yeah, in a sense. That's so, that's such a
1: great great analogy, yeah.
0: And so it's it's amazing, and that's where this sort of exchange of culture and ideas is amazing. And that's why I I ask you this question of where art stands have to kind of agree with you. I don't know that any individual artist has a specific responsibility to change the world or anything any more than anyone else.
1: Yeah. I think you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. You know, both as people and artists. And, and I also think, you know, I also think art is a weird concept in the, in in the sense of, um, you know, I have all these people come up and they say, I'm not creative. I wish I was creative like you. And I think we've done this terrible Mm -hmm. disservice by, by assigning creativity to the arts and not to everything else. You know, you're starting a new enterprise. Mm-hmm. That's a creative undertaking. Yeah. Every aspect of it, the hiring, the, you know, how you position yourself. all those things. raising a kid, you know, <laughs> how teasing out, you know, the wonderfulness of that child. That's a creative convincing act. them
0: to eat their dinner. Oh my that's god. That's a creative yeah. endeavor. Yeah,
1: everything. And we, we we have this weird idea that you know, creativity is, you know, visual arts or poetry yeah. or theater. Life is creative, and I believe absolutely fundamentally. And this is what you know. The, if there's one thing I stand for, it's kind of this: that I, I want my greatest achievement not to be a poem or to be a performance or something. I want it to be my life. You know, I think I think your life is your masterpiece. It is your work of art. And one thing I I never want to be is one of those you know. And this is, I'm not in that category anyway. But one of those people who create great art but have a shitty life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and we see that it's become the accepted norm, right? You know, the tortured artist, yeah. you know, he was an absolute beast of a human being, you know, but he, but God, he could play trumpet. Fuck that. I, I, I want my life to be beautiful. I want the art to be beautiful. I want it to move people forward. Mm-hmm. Like to my mind, that's what, what my game is anyway. And I want it to be joyful. Right. Cause I think life is joy. I think we've, you know, Oh, you do like you got two kids, you know right, like I was you know, I was in Montreal the other day, I was killing myself, two kids they were in a state of ecstasy, running from you know here to there. What could be more fun than that?
0: <laughs> yeah, know? it's amazing,
1: yeah, i yeah, am just watching it going, man, that just raging you know joy of life and and you know that that's what I think. My personal view of art—what I want my art to be—is a celebration of life, and I see a lot of art which is a condemnation of life, mm-hmm. you know. And and I'm I'm I think that's the game that you know that we're playing. It's it gets back to that self-loathing we talked about, but where you know where our religions come from and all right. that sort of thing. And and I want to flip that.
0: Yeah, I get asked that fairly often too, because I just dabble in a lot of things. I mean, from poetry to making music to scoring films to, you know, now podcasts, <laughs> doing all of these things. And and people are like, how do you do all this stuff? I wish I was creative. And typically my first response is, well, have you, what have you actually tried? Until you take a chance on yourself to try right. something you don't know. Right. I, I agree, yes. Creativity is not just whatever we call quote unquote art or artistic. Right. But creativity is the very process through which something that didn't exist in the physical world now exists. And that exists in the form of, you know, we've we've got a glass of water in front of us. Somebody yeah. had to design this in AutoCAD or something at some point. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to design every single piece of furniture and yeah. technology in this room. Someone had to figure out how the door hinge would connect to the door, all yeah. of those different things. That was something that was living in an abstract realm somewhere, perhaps even beyond us. And you had this moment of inspiration, and now that thing is real, and it's in front of people, or they can listen to it, or they can consume it or eat it. That is creativity. And I think if we focus ourselves around in every moment we are creating, it kind of changes your relationship with your life in a way, because you're not just the inheritor or victim of circumstance. And it's not to say that many people have circumstances that I will never uh, be able to imagine. Uh, I quite honestly, I I do feel blessed for the life that I've had. Even in those circumstances though, you are creating every,
1: every uh, thought,
0: every moment. Yeah.
1: Every thought is a creative act, you know? Yeah. Every thought, every thought changes the world, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I, 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 this is one of my fundamental views. I don't believe life, happens to people the way that we think it happens to people. You know, I I think that a lot of it is something that that we create. And this is, again, why I come back to the importance of the story, is a lot of us have these stories, Mm -hmm. and we just keep telling ourselves these stories, and then we recreate our future based on the story that we've told ourselves. This is the way I am. This is the way the world is. And this is what they... And they go out and they see it and they focus on it, and that's what happens. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Drop the story. Like create, write a new story Mm -hmm. and anybody can do it, you know, and people have done, there's, there's lots of examples of Mm -hmm. that. And that's not to in any way demean the the tragedy of the circumstances anyone is born into, but every, everything, we live in a world of probabilities. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, the future is open-ended to a certain degree. There are parameters obviously on it, but, and, you know, creation I, you know, I would like just people to be creative with their lives, creative with what they think, you know.
0: Have you heard of, uh, this gentleman named Nick Yaris?
1: I've heard the name.
0: I just came across him incidentally through Joe Rogan's podcast. He had him on a few weeks ago and quite honestly, I was a mess listening to this conversation because without kind of going too deep into it, this guy, I think he's, uh, in his early sixties at this point. He was in prison for 22 years okay, for a I rape and know. murder that Yeah, he I do know commit. this. Yeah. And yeah. the things that he he in his lifetime that he's recounted the things that have happened to him Yeah. beyond fathomable like you cannot write no, the story yeah. like Tragedy, the fiction that, that, of that. Yeah. And yet when when I heard this guy very just honestly talk about the the things that he wrestles with and how he just wants to be a positive person yeah. and he was going to his revenge on the people that uh, tormented him all his life was just to be a nice, happy guy. Yeah. And I was incredibly humbled, first of all, just to even hear, hear about all that. And I think, you know, someone like him is a truly remarkable person. I don't, I'm, I I don't know that I would have the, the fortitude. They're the Gandhis you never hear about. Yeah, absolutely. But yet we are all authoring within some parameters, as, as you put it, to some extent, every moment in our life. Yeah.
1: We don't, and this is, you know, this is something I fundamentally believe. I took, you know, years ago I had, uh, I got to the point where drugs started not to work for me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is why I don't do them now. But, and I had this, you know, very, like basically whacked me into a serious sort of chronic, not, not a chronic, but a very, a deep temporary depression. And it taught me a really valuable lesson because, you know, when I, when I, when I hit that place, everything in my life looked terrible. You know, I was ashamed of everything I'd done in my life. I was ashamed of the way I was as a person. I had no hope in the future. Whereas the day before, I hadn't felt that way. Mm-hmm. And then, when you know, when I kind of got off that bad trip, I didn't feel that way. And I realized that the way that you see the world is so vitally important. It's and most of us never. Most of us assume the way we see the world is the way the world is. Total nonsense. The way we see the world is the way we see the world. And you can shift your focus any way you want at any time you want. Mm -hmm. You know, I made a conscious decision. I cut out 90% of the negativity in my life. The way I wake up in the morning, the way I ease into the day, type of information I give myself, the type of, you know, affirmations, what I listen to, the music, the people I surround myself, that's all done deliberately to create a certain mindset and Mm -hmm. a certain way of going forward in the world. And, you know, you see it, I heard someone talking today, if, you know, if you're born into, you know, we're talking about the police in that environment, you're barraged by that and you start to become that type of thing. You can do the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've tailored my Facebook feed so I'm getting the stuff I want Mm -hmm. and not the stuff I don't want. Right you know, so but people don't like if I could you know p- people would sec- accept responsibility for their viewpoint of the world and recognize that it's malleable, and they can change it any way they want. It's not a set thing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know that
1: is freedom.
0: Well, not only that it's malleable is that we've handed over the keys to that pliable, malleable perspective. To others, to in media many cases, to yeah. Media, like to, we
1: get it from our parents, we get it from the school system. But like you're an adult now, mm-hmm. you know you you don't have to you don't have to listen to that. You don't have to talk. You don't you don't have to watch the news. You don't have to watch the news. You have to listen to that shit if you don't want. Like you can do mm-hmm. whatever you want to do.
0: I I feel compelled to ask you this, uh, you know. And I, I don't know where this would go. You're probably the most articulate person that I have met who. I mean, you've you've just mentioned it now. Who that I have known to have you know dealt with any bout of depression, and as as someone who I mean, admittedly, I've not experienced that. I've never completely understood it from the outside. Yeah, I'm let, curious to.
1: Yeah, let me be clear on that. I've never had any depression other than what was drug induced. Okay, so I've never had. I'm not a depressive personality. I don't have. I haven't had suicidal thoughts. I just had you know a period in my youth where I I did. Way too many drugs to the point where they started to have the reverse effect, where you know, where they gave me sort of pleasure and ecstasy, they just shut my brain down and put me into a really catatonic depression. Hmm. So that only lasted for the duration of okay. doing the drugs. So I really can't talk about, you know, people who suffer from serious serious depression. But again, I from for myself, I came out of that experience. Absolutely determined to control my mental state of mind, you know, to 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 actively work on how am I thinking, how am I feeling, what thoughts am I choosing to entertain, not just let the world come at me randomly and assume that that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So, and and I believe that is the
0: greatest power we have as people. At the reference library downtown, uh, which I think they've done a great job with that space. There's a a media area there. And in that area is a sort of half semicircular wall with a whole bunch of TV panels on it—maybe 16 TVs or 20 TVs or something—and each one of those TVs is playing a different channel and a different show. And it was funny because visually, I found it to be an interesting space, and because it's the public library, there's a bunch of just chairs and there's people sitting around uh, from all walks of life. There was, you know, a couple of guys in suits. There was some gentlemen who were, you know, clearly homeless one guy who I'm pretty sure is a a taxi driver that I'd seen and whatnot. So just all, all walks of life sitting in there and hunched over in these chairs, just kind of staring at these screens. And it looked like this bizarre dystopian metaphor to me of what is happening in our minds because it feels like at all times we're constantly being bombarded by these images and all these different TVs are in front of us. We don't even know which one to look at. Many of them aren't necessarily sending a healthy message and we're not actually either just turning the TV off and focusing on what we ourselves are thinking or should be thinking about because we're just so preoccupied. And I just found it really, it it was such a clear metaphor for what I feel like many of us are in today that we don't take the time to disconnect, which feels ironic, you know, when you're online on a podcast trying to tell somebody (laughs) to disconnect. I I know that poetic harmony. We're talking. But I I think that we just need to just kind of take that time for ourselves, as you have done, to say, what is it that I actually want to be thinking about? What is it that I want to be feeling? And if you know yourself as a sort of a a bag of flesh and bones and and stimuli from the outside, you know, hearing one thing or reading one thing is going to trigger a whole sequence of other thoughts and ideas. So you can intercept that by putting the right thing in front of you in the first place. Like that just takes a level of, of awareness. Yeah.
1: You know, and I think it's one of the things I love about you. I mean, your range of interests and subjects that you're interested in and like you could be spending all that time, you know, on shit that doesn't matter, you know, but you've got a, this great curiosity and you're interested in ideas and, 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 you know, I think that's the way to go through life. But, you know, the problem with a lot of it is you just get, you know, the the, the ability to be negative, especially in the time period that we're in today. But there's so much beauty in the world. There's so mm-hmm. much positivity. There's so much courage. There's so much passion. But that doesn't meet that. it doesn't get in the headlines. But it's everywhere. You know, I on the, I, I took an Uber on the way over here. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to the guy. He, he anyway, he's uh uh originally from Iraq. He just got a degree uh as a paralegal. Okay. In 13 days, he's gonna be sworn in as a citizen. Wow. And it's famous here. And it's like it's like this incredible story, and he like loves Canada you know, recognizes it's not perfect and everything and has a place in his heart for Iraq. But he's like, you know, it's just this incredible story that's just sitting there. It's a good news story you're never going to hear about. Mm -hmm. It's not in the newspaper. Like, he's not going to be on the headline. It'll be some other thing about some Iraqi who did some stupid shit or something. That's what's going to get the attention. But all of those stories, like, life is a smorgasbord, and most of it is positive. Mm -hmm. But we've been trained culturally and through our news things to always look at what's wrong. Like our definition of news (laughs) is what the fuck went
0: wrong. Yep. Like, because that's our definition of noobs. Because the system <laughs> has been set up, has only been able to monetize itself on the basis that's of right. fear yeah. and uncertainty. Yeah, right? and,
1: you know, it, it, it's tickling that reptilian section yeah. of our brain, right? If but I, people are moving beyond it. Well, I, I, if, if slowly. If I, <laughs> if I shove enough
0: images of brown-skinned, bearded men yeah. yelling things in languages I don't understand, shooting guns, that's and right. if, I, tell, if I, I put enough images of women with, who don't fit a certain body profile, Or uh, I tell you that the sky is falling at all times. In order to address that, because we are generally risk averse and we want to survive, our mechanism to address that today is to go and buy more shit. Yeah. That's just what we do. So a country (laughs) will buy more guns and more tanks. A person will buy more makeup or more, you know, like vitamin pills or supplements or whatever that might be. The system is employing itself on the backs of this fear and uncertainty. And that's the thing that. I think we have to recognize and change. Like it should be intuitively, it should be easier and more profitable to sell good, you know, quote unquote yeah. news versus bad news. But and, it's not. And if we did that, we would, I think, only perpetuate more good news, yeah. right? Like if you if you read a story every single day about how this person helped that person and it made a difference in somebody's life and all they had to do, the only thing that they did was smile and say hello yeah. to that person. You might be like, Holy shit. Like yeah. that that was a good news story. It made a difference in somebody else's life. It didn't cost me a dime. I this person smiled at them and now this person's like yeah. all of a sudden, you know, happy. Like
1: And and I am doing that. Like that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm seeking out those good things. You know, mm-hmm. whether those are good people or good news or you know, it's why I, I, you know, was happy to come down here and do this. This would be a good thing. Right. It's gonna be a great thing. You know, and I, I wrote i w I'm working on a poem, it's not quite finished, but basically the general gist of it, it this is a, a page poem rather than a spoken word piece, but it, it basically the gist of it is, uh, this morning, in place of the news feed's gleeful retelling of yesterday's terror song and predictions for the coming day's apocalypse inevitable, I flipped open the forest and clicked on a path through the tamaracks and down to the creek where I sat and listened to all that was well with the world. The slow shifting of the seasons The Gladness of Moss and the Love Affair of Water and Rock, who, by the way, have been shamelessly stroking each other for centuries now with no sign of impending modesty. Anyway, it basically goes on with that idea of just choosing to taste the smorgasbord of the world in a different
0: way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You
1: know, look at a different dish. That
0: is brilliant. Yeah. On that note, who are poets or writers that you are inspired by
1: Yeah, it really depends. It's different for spoken word than
0: it is for page poetry. Sure.
1: For page poetry, almost without fail, all my favorite poets are women. Okay. All of them. Uh, you know, and and in fact, I have sort of two anthologies of 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 women's poetry. Um, Cries of the Spirit, I think one of them's called and and you know, and you know whether that's uh, you know uh, there's a gazillion of them who are mm-hmm. who are uh, you know Mary Oliver is one of one of my favorite Margaret Atwood is is genius mm-hmm. uh, Marilyn Nelson there's a woman named Barbara Crooker who I'm totally into right now um, you know there's there are many of them and and on page and what I love about them is that they write about everyday things and and they capture the sacredness and the sanctity of the everyday moment what i call mm-hmm. what i call the common uncounted moment known as now and but when it comes to spoken word spoken word to my mind is more of a performance it lends itself i i you know people shoot me for this but i i think it lends itself a bit more to masculine energy because mm-hmm. it's a bit more rah, you know yeah. and you know and so there, I I differ on 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 who I love. I mean, obviously in Canada, I think Ian Kenneku is the master. I don't think right. there's anyone doing it better. I, I don't I don't think any. It, it's funny. I think he's so good that people have no idea how good that actually is. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's just on yeah. a different level, and and they miss half of it. Um, you know, and uh, there's a lot of Americans that I you know I I, I, th- I think um, the guy did the poem. Um, I, f- I forget it now. Um, about being a teacher. Oh, anyway, that was one of my favorite poems, and of course, anyway, it really divides interesting along gender mm-hmm. lines, depending on whether it's spoken word or page poetry.
0: We, uh, my wife and I, went to see Shane Cozens. Yeah, love um, he's fantastic. I, I, I just, I, I think he's probably part of the catalyst of me falling back into spoken word poetry. I think because when I heard the way that he delivers and the stories that he tells, yeah, it was not that strong yeah. masculine or yeah. otherwise typically masculine, um, you know, yeah. angry delivery, yeah. which is not, it's not something that for me personally comes as naturally, even though the content of, of much of my writing might be angry. I don't necessarily, I haven't found that voice in delivering it that way. Yeah. yeah. And his sort of meandering, rolling yeah. way of delivering these things, I just thought was so offbeat. And it's and,
1: so interesting and so engaging.
0: Yeah, it, incredibly. And so we saw him at the Winter Garden Theater, which I think seats 1,200 people. Yeah. It was a Tuesday night in a February, and it was bloody cold. Like, it must have been mi- minus <laughs> 20. And I remember going to this, and I, first of all, I was like, Winter Garden Theater? They're filling, they're putting on a performance of spoken word there. I was so surprised to see that. We got there, and it was sold out, and it was such a different gamut of people from all age groups, all demographics and whatnot. And there was also, um, uh, I guess there's a younger collective of spoken word poets from Toronto who was opening up for him. So I'm sure there was many of their fans and supporters that were there too. And there's some great talent here in spoken word. When Shane went on, it was strange because seeing someone command a stage with being sort of the gentle type of aura that he is, was really interesting. And the two things I found most surprising were, A, he is so damn funny. Yeah, yeah. He, I, I think he's actually a better stand-up comic yeah. even than he is a, a spoken word poet. And he's a yeah. brilliant spoken word poet. Yeah, yeah. His storytelling was, was great between all the poems. Yeah. Um, but also that this medium, this idea of spoken word, which is not for whatever reason is it feels distant from some of the snootiness of page poetry and traditional poetry and and literature that feels inaccessible and maybe highbrow this feels like it's it's a it's an art form for the people and the people were there that night yeah and it was just really interesting to see people really get into this and the stories he tells are also they feel they're very human, but they're also very specific to his own life experience. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not this general no. ode to love or no. loss or it, anything. It's
1: grounded in his personal experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And that that's, that's an, and an emotion that's what, yeah, he's, he's really like anybody doing spoken word in Canada owes a huge homage to Shane Coyson. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know him. I, I met him once. I performed with him once. Um, so I, 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 but what I, you know, what I wish for him is, is happiness because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I obviously connected with him on Facebook and, and, you know, I don't communicate with him or anything, but, you know, I read his posts and, and I know he's struggling and it, it bothers me because the guy is so mm-hmm. amazing. And as you say, he's so funny and he's so compassionate and, you know, I, I want him to be whole and you know, and, and powerful and healed. And, you know, I know he's gone through some family trauma and, and his grandmother mm-hmm. was very important. His life died. And, uh, you know, I, I want to see, you know, Shane Koisin 2.0 kick ass because the guys, you know, yeah he, absolutely he, he's the standard bearer for. yeah Sculpting No War.
0: shout out to Shane Koisin. If you ever listen to this, uh, you've got, uh, you've got well-wishers that's for sure. No I, I just I found he there was something particularly interesting about him. I mean there's there's so many incredible poets out there. I I, I really like a lot of Rudy Francisco's oh, work. Yeah. Um he's just a whole other style. Yeah and there, you know again yeah.
1: like that's what I would not call a overtly you know in your face over the top masculine style, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. and and it's totally great great. <laughs> like it his his gentleness, his authenticity Brings you right in.
0: Yeah, he's so self-deprecating yeah, yeah. and clever about it, but he's yeah. very colloquial in his language. Yeah. Uh, Javon Johnson had this one poem about uh, you know, as a, as a black man in America, like what you would, what he needs to feel is he needs to communicate to his his young nephews. And, yeah, I know that. Holy, yeah. holy shit! I, I I listened to that. I thought, like, yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing where, uh, albeit I don't know that any artist has any specific extra responsibility to the the world at large. But man, if you've got that gift and that skill, and you can put into words or song or art something that other people feel but don't know how to express, and that those people can then say, hey, you remember I was telling you uh, about this? This is what I meant. You've given somebody a vehicle to communicate something that's deep-rooted. I think that that's, that's brilliant. I do feel that athletes and actors and people in positions of influence and power that have benefited off a certain system, if they do feel strongly about something, I feel they have an obligation, not even maybe to the world, but at least to themselves to just speak that. I have tremendous respect for Colin Kaepernick in the face of everything that's happened to him being ostracized by the NFL. You know that guy has he stood his ground with oh, class man. and dignity.
1: Yeah, some modern hero.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't completely personally understand the whole the Nike side of things. Um, I think that's kind of bizarre. But that aside, with my own personal hangups on it, I, I respect the guy tremendously, and I, I I respect that he's stood in the face of adversity, or rather kneeled in the face of <laughs> adversity, time and time again. And it just takes one person. Yeah, it takes. And
1: the way he's doing it, right? Yeah, that—that's what's so amazing. He's doing it with dignity and grace, and you cannot, you know, you, you That's what enrages mm-hmm. a lot of people about it, right? Is because it's so powerful.
0: Yeah, Le- LeBron James. I mean, for all his criticism that he gets from uh, the person who currently occupies the Oval Office, I hate even saying the word president because that just yeah. feels like so <laughs> uh, so odd. But for all that critique, like, the guy's opening up schools. Like, uh, out yeah. of the, 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 the millions of dollars that he has yeah. made for being an elite athlete at the top of of any game, he's still given so much back to his community. I still think he navigates himself with a level of dignity and self-respect, even though he doesn't necessarily need to, even though that's not necessarily expected of him. Yeah. And I find that quite remarkable. And I think that these are the, the type of people you know, men and women that we should be kind of celebrating.
1: Yeah, and also the people nobody ever talks about, you Mm -hmm. know, like the regular people who are being good
0: dads. They're fighting the the good fight every day.
1: Yeah, who never get any, you know, you know, just when I hear stories from people who talk about, you know, you hear so many stories of horrendous childhoods. And when I hear people talking about good childhoods, you're just like, wow, awesome, (laughs) you know, and good for your parents, man. Like, those people were heroes.
0: I had met a gentleman who worked at uh, one of the shipping companies here. And we're just kind of talking about leadership and and management at one point. And I don't know what question it was that I asked specifically that triggered this, but he told a story and I am a sucker for stories in case it wasn't already blatantly obvious. So he, (laughs) uh, he was the manager for this one shipping center. Uh, When he came in as the manager in that team, Uh, he's really big on making sure that his team loves and respects him. And he earns that by loving and respecting his team. Like it feels so bloody obvious. I don't know why people don't do it, but there was one guy who was in his team who is the recluse of the group. And every, and when he'd asked, like, we know what's with him, you know, the most of the team just kind of dismissed him. He's kind of weird. He's kind of quiet. You know, we don't know what he's on or whatever. He wouldn't really talk to anybody. He wouldn't get in anyone's way. He was just quiet. But every morning without fail, this guy said, I would say good morning to him. How are you? And for months in a row, he just wouldn't even respond, wouldn't say anything. He had been on, uh, on new, new routes when he was getting to know the area for the driving routes. He would sit, you know, for hours in a day and this guy would have nothing to say, wouldn't talk to him at all. But he was persistent. He kept saying, good morning. How are you every single day? And he said after about five or six months, this guy finally started saying hi or good morning, who would at least return the the greeting. It slowly kind of built from there where they would have some, you know, casual, you know, small talk and then conversation and whatnot. It never got that deep from what he told me. And then this guy took a leave of absence for some time without, and they didn't know um, what the reason was because, and only HR would have known at that point. And then he ended up passing away and it turned out that he was late stage cancer. Yeah. He needed to keep working. And uh, he passed away, but nobody in the team knew this. And what actually happened was this guy's wife, the guy who passed away, came to the distribution center, asked to meet with this guy who was the manager. And he went down to meet her, and he didn't really know what she wanted to talk to him about. And she said, I'm just here to say thank you. For the last six months of my husband's life, all he could ever talk about over dinner was you. (laughs) and how you made him feel and how you would say hello to him and how you would treat him as a person and how you would see him and you would take the time and you were the one thing he would talk about every single day at dinner and you made the last six months of his life better I I think she even went so far to say as to say like he did something for her husband that even she hadn't found a way to do so he told a story and I was like I was instantly just a mess, right? Because I'm like, I thought we were talking about management to leadership. This yeah. is a whole other yeah, thing. Yeah. And yet it's not. Yeah, yeah. But it was just that that simple. This guy just acknowledging yeah. this guy's existence was, was enough. And just if we, if nothing else, we yeah. just recognize that we're both homo sapiens and we have some, something in common, just recognize and respect that. Yeah. We'll be a little further along. We've covered a shitload of stuff. Yeah, thanks, man. And I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I just tremendously appreciate. Oh man, it's a total
1: pleasure. I appreciate uh, the offer to come down and and yap away.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd love to do this again at, at at some point. You know, I'm sure we'd have tons to talk about. It's, uh, this this is where it all begins. This conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You know, before we close out, where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh Well, If the Poet, uh, I have Facebook under Ian French. Uh, I have a website, ifthepoet.com, and I also do kind of this more spiritual-oriented poetry under the name Iena, which is E-E-A-N-N-A, and I have that at Iena.com. is on Instagram and Facebook as well.
0: Amazing. Well, Ian, thank you so much, and uh, thank hope you, to Anu's. see you again great. soon. Yeah, great. All right, that's a wrap. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.